Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to talk about the concept or the question, should a wife be submissive and subservient to her husband? We are going to talk about a number of aspects of this, and I am going to go into a little more depth in this introduction talking about this theory. But on a high level, we're going to talk about, is this a Torah concept? There are, in fact, Kala teachers that are teaching this concept And why should it be that the wife surrenders and cedes control to the husband? Let him make the decisions. Why not the husband ceding to control to the wife? Is extreme giving by one spouse and not the other? Is that normal and healthy? Uh, That has actually been written on by Dr. Bencion Soretskin. We'll post that article on our website about extreme giving. And uh, should college teachers be teaching this or should they not be teaching this? And we'll talk about some financial decision making. If there's a disagreement between a husband and wife? How should they make a a decision between between the two of them? And should a wife say anything when a husband is making bad decisions? How about if he's making terrible decisions? So those are some of the high-level questions that we will seek to address on today's show. We are going to have quite a roster of guests on this show. We're going to start out with Rabbi Zev Lef. He is the rabbi of Moshe Matisiachu. He is a a real maven in Shalom Bayis. And then we will talk with another expert, in fact, He's a veteran, Machanach, a relationship expert and author, Rabbi Ben Sion Shafir. We will be talking about a new book that he will be putting out on Shalom Bayis. And then we will speak with a regular on the show, Mrs. Elisheva Lish. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a law, lecturer and author. She will have some, some uh, very in, interesting insights and opinions when it comes to this concept of the surrendered wife. Should the wife be surrendering to the husband? And then we'll speak with Mrs. Sarah Yochevet Riegler, the best-selling author, inspirational teacher. She is also teaching a webinar for a number of years now on Shalom Bayis. And we will end off the show with Mrs. Chaya Juravel. She is a relationship coach and founder of Go For Harmony. So, just on a high level, I do want to discuss the theory of the surrendered wife. The surrendered wife was something that was created by a non-Jewish author, Laura Doyle. It has been a very successful. She's written a number of books on the concept, which has actually evolved over time. And on a high level, the surrendered wife means that a wife needs to surrender to her husband. She has to cede control to him. In fact, there's a ulterior motive that she has to try to change him, uh, to become endeared to him somehow by surrendering all control to him. And uh, the theory is also based on what seems to be quite a negative view of men, that they can't handle feedback, they lack emotional maturity. I I wonder if the college teachers are teaching that as well. But uh, this theory is somewhat similar, but not fully to a theory we talked about on the show. A few weeks ago, we talked about uh, effectively the surrendered husband concept uh, and quoted Rabbi Sholem Arush's book, The Garden of Peace. And uh, in that book, uh, there were two Two major points that he quoted from his Rebbe. Uh, this book was put out around 20 years ago that the wife is a mirror of the husband and any deficiency in her is his own deficiency. And number two, the husband can make no comments or criticisms of the wife. So on, on a high level, it looks like that Laura Doyle's theory is that the surrendered wife and Rabbi Sholem Arusha's theory based on his Rebbe is the surrendered husband. There are some significant differences between the two theories. I, I did want to mention, parents, 
parenthetically that after that show a few weeks ago, there was a complaint call. Uh, the uh, person was a student of Rabbi Arush, and uh, he objected to the fact that uh, the concept was taken out of its context. Now, he didn't say it was taken out of context of the book, because uh, the concept that we talked about on that show and, and that I'm mentioning right now was exactly on point in the book. I actually, when I got that call, I gave the book to somebody who hadn't read it, who doesn't know much about Shalom Bayis books, hasn't uh, really been jaded on this issue. And I said, can you take this book, please read it and tell me what you think the theme is of the book or the themes of the book. And uh, I, I uh, got a response back that the theme is exactly as was discussed on the show, that uh, the husband is the problem in the marriage and the wife simply reflects the the husband and all problems in the marriage are a result of the husband and he has to give in to all the desires of the wife. Basically the surrendered husband theory or the smata husband theory, whatever you want to call it. So the the, uh, the talk and the discussion was not taken out of context of the book, but the person who called and complained, I will mention, he didn't say it was taken out of context of the book. He said it was taken out of context of the teachings of Rabbi Arush. Rabbi Arush's teachings are much broader and he focuses on Hispotidus, etc. And and uh, th- that is nice, but when somebody puts out a book, the book has to stand by itself. And when somebody reads a book, they are not going to be held responsible to look into other areas of teachings there afterward by the author of the book. So if uh, the book is inaccurate or it doesn't properly reflect the teachings of the author, it should be revised. Um, if it is uh, not accurate or the author doesn't think that it is on point, it should be recalled, like uh, the FDA... They will recall medicines and uh, there are recalls of products that are defective. So I would say the same thing about a book. If it's not a, a working theory, maybe it should be recalled. That is, is a possibility. I, I think it's also important to mention that the, the main point of the book, the, the theory and, and uh, theme of the book that uh, Rabbi Rush did speak about was from his Rebbe, um, who it now turns out he is a convicted sex offender. And it's probably not the best to learn Shalom bias issues from somebody who is a convicted sex offender. So um, I just did want to put that on the table. It was not meant to offend Rabbi Arush, and there was no offense. It, it didn't uh, talk about him personally at all. Uh, he has com- tremendously um, contributed to Kal Yisrael with his uh, his books that are well known. And uh, as we will mention on this show as well about this theory, with the specific theory in this specific book, it, it, there are people that uh, do say that it's not a healthy theory in Shalom Bayis, and that is not meant to take away from the author of, book, of the book, but rather it is uh, a comment on the theory and the themes of the book, um, but not the individual writing the book. And that's a, a very important point. And if uh, that was uh, taken as an offense to the Rav. I I apologize for that. And uh, when we talk about that book as well on this show, it is not pointed at the author, Rabbi Arush, but simply the theory that was discussed in detail in the book. And that is, frankly, the theme of the book. And I would say, if I would have to think about what a second theme of the book is, I would have a difficult time thinking of it because it's not Hisbodidus that is rarely mentioned in the book. I didn't remember seeing it at all, but when I gave the book to the person to review it, uh, I was pointed out that it is mentioned parenthetically, but certainly it's not the theme of the book. So to get back, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the surrendered husband theory, but our focus is more going to be on the surrendered wife and Shalom Bayes issues 
in that regard. So just a little bit on the Parsha as it relates to this, we have uh, Yaakov Avinu who is slaving for his uh, dear or not-so-dear father-in-law, Lavan, who was uh, dishonest numerous times, and at a certain point, things totally broke down, and Yaakov Avinu approaches his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and says, this isn't going to work anymore, we need to get out of here. And he does explain exactly what the issues were. He's changed my compensation package on a number of occasions, and this is somebody who's not trustworthy, and uh, the relationship has soured, and it is time for us to move on. And then, and only then, Yaakov mentions, and in fact, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told me that it is time to move on. And the question is, why didn't Yaakov Avinu simply say, Rachel, Leah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told me it's time to move on. Why did he have to explain in detail the rationales and reasons why it was time to leave, and only thereafter mentioned that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had said the same. And there are a number of explanations, but I saw a number along this line. When you want to have Shalom Bais, and what's a proper interaction in the household, not only between husband and wife, wife and husband, also with others as well, you can't dictate things. And even when your decision is made, or you know you're right, and even when it's backed up by Torah, when it's backed up by Kaddish Baruch Hu told him, we have to explain things so they can be received properly and understood properly by the people who are going to be impacted by those decisions. And that's why Yaakov Avinu told Rachel and Leah, it's time to move on because of X, Y, and Z, and explain the reason and the reasons and what was going on between him and their father. It's time to leave, and only thereafter did he mention also that that was what HaKadosh Baruch Hu stated. So I think that's very relevant for our discussion today on Shalom Bayis. Should this be something that the husband makes the decision, the wife makes the decision, or should it be something that is more joint and mutual and discussed so it is understood by all. Before we go on and meet with our guests, I did want to just quickly go through a riddle or two of the week. So, you know, we'll go with two riddles. Riddle number one, uh, the question is as follows. Where do we have a source, maybe even in our parsha, that discusses the benefit or the possible benefit or the desire or the preference of being self-employed rather than being employed by somebody else? So that is going to be riddle number one. And in fact, if we do have a source, I would love for people to research. I'm sorry to give you my work, but this is a topic that interests me. Where do we have other concepts along the same line in Tanakh or in Chazal of being an employer or working for your own, being self-employed or being an employee, the preference of one versus the other? I would love to see sites, Mekoros and anyone sends in. So that indeed is going to be riddle number one. Riddle number two is based on the Pasuk in Perakhav Tes, Pasuk Chaf, Vayavod Yaakov Rachel Sheva Shanim. So Yaakov Avini worked seven years for Rachel and it flew by because he loved her so much. And the question is the obvious question. Everyone asks this question and there are numerous answers to this. I'm interested in hearing the most interesting ones of them. How is it possible that when Yaakov Avina was working for seven years, it went quickly. He's waiting to marry his wife, his cherished future wife, and now he has to wait. That should be painful waiting not easy and quick. So the question is, how can we explain that the time flew by 
rather than really crawling. Uh, just uh, an interesting thing, what we're going to do on today's show is for anyone who answers, actually for the first five people, first correct answers that we get in or interesting answers that we get in for either of these riddles, we are going to give away a book that is going to be published in the next few weeks by Rabbi Ben Sion Shafir, a very interesting book. I got a pre-publication of this book, read it, and we will talk about it on the show as well. Very interesting book. The book is the 10 really dumb mistakes that really smart couples make on Shalom Bayes. Really fascinating book. So first five that give great answers to those riddles will get a copy of the book. It should come out shortly. And just to mention, please stay tuned at the end of the show. Reb David Lichtenstein will come on and we'll discuss answers, responses that we received to the riddle from last week's show. And now to our guests. To leave a message, call 732-806-8700 and press number 2, or email at info at headlinesbook.com. Joining us now is Rabbi Zev Lef. Rav Lef is a noted posek, an author, a Rosh Hashiva, and an expert in Chinuch and Shalom Bayis, among many other things. Rav Lef, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Can I, before we start, give a caveat? Absolutely. Since I was uh, introduced as an expert in Shalom Bayes, um, my wife is going to hear this, and I don't know if she'll agree. But in any case, um, what I want to say is the following, and I think it's important that if there are some young Rabbonim listening to this, maybe they can learn a lesson from it. Um, Just as much as when I got smicha, I was qualified to answer halachic and hashkothic shilas, but I was not qualified to do operations and uh, be a doctor. And therefore, when I have shilas that have to do with medicine and uh, uh, similar kinds of shilas, um, I basically refer to a doctor and ask for the medical information. And after I get the information, I can then uh, decide halachically what to do with that information. Similarly, when I got smicha, I did not become a social worker or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, and therefore, if I have Shilas in Shalom Bayes, uh, I refer to people who have training and know what to do. People I trust that their training was good training and they know what to do. And I send people to them and they then work with me if there are halachic issues or hashkothic issues in how they're going to deal with the shalom bias issue. So I would not classify myself as an expert in shalom bias. I am perhaps uh, not an expert, but I dabble in halacha and in hashkotha, right? That's my, my trum. And uh, the other parts of shalom bias, the mechanics uh, I leave up to people who have training and who are experts in the field and who can then, I can work together with them. And as much so, if there are psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers listening to this, when they got their degree, they did not become Rabboni and cannot paskin shilas and cannot tell Torah Hashkafa. They have to liaison with rabbis and rabbis have to liaison with them. And then people can have real help in Shalom Bayes. So that, that's our legal disclaimer, our, our rabbinic disclaimer, we can call it. So, <laughs> so uh, joining us now is Rabbi Lev. He is not an expert in Shalom Bayes, but to me, he is an absolute expert in Shalom Bayes. So having said that, Rabbi Lev, a pleasure to have you. We'll, we'll, we'll stick then with the, with the Torah Hashkafa. 
who is more responsible for Shalom Bayis? Is it the husband? Is it the wife? Or is it both? I think Shalom means Shlemus, perfection. In order to reach perfection, everything in this world except for HaKadosh Baruch Hu is imperfect. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created two imperfect beings, one male and one female, and uh, the perfection comes from them working together, each one perfecting the other and getting perfection from the other. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, they work together. I don't know if anybody is more in, in certain areas, um, perhaps the husband has to take the lead in certain areas, the wife has to take the lead, but it's more of a, um, of a, uh, a combined effort without putting the onus on any one of them specifically in general. Uh-huh. So, so based on that, what's your opinion of one spouse being the extreme giver? And we can define that as one spouse being most beneficial tremendously to an extreme without an upper limit and the other one doing either much less or nothing in giving to the relationship. Okay, first of all, um, since you use the word extreme, when it comes to Torah, the extreme is never good. So whatever is extreme probably is not proper. And this idea that there's one who is the total giver and the other the receiver, let me, let me tell you, it says that the, the people misunderstand the Mikhtab Meliyahu. The Mikhtab Meliyahu says that chesed is giving, and one should always strive to be a giver and not a taker. Now, if you think about that, that's a little bit... Um, not possible because if everybody's going to be givers, there's nobody to take. So they can't give to anybody. So we have to at least elect one symbolic taker so everybody can be givers. And that's absurd. Avram Avinu is, um, is, is seen as the Amuda Chesed because he gives and he doesn't take. Where is that by Melech Saddam? He doesn't even take a shoelace from when he could have taken all the booty and spoils of the of the, the war that he was victorious. And Melech Saddam was willing to give him everything. And Avram Avinu said, I won't take even a shoelace. But Avram Avinu took very nicely three other times. He took presents from Paro. He took presents from Avimelech. And according to some opinions, he took Meisel from Malkitzedek. So out of three out of four times, Avram was a nice taker. And only one time do we see he was the giver. Why was Avram the, uh, the Amud Chesed? And therefore, it appears to me that giving and taking does not necessarily depend on who is giving out and who's receiving. Sometimes you can receive and you are the giver. And sometimes you can give and you're the taker. Give me an example. Um, somebody goes to visit someone in the hospital. They want to fulfill the myths of Bikr Cholet. They spend money, time. They come to the hospital and the patient is asleep. Chutzpah, I came to visit you. What are you asleep? Now, in the hospital, it's very difficult to get to sleep. So most of the time, there are exceptions. The person would rather remain asleep than have a visitor. But I want to have my mitzvah. So I walk into the room, throw over some chairs. Person wakes up. And I say, oh, excuse me, I didn't mean to wake you. You did mean to wake them because you want your mitzvah. Now, even though you appear to be the giver, but you're really the taker. You're using that person to get your mitzvah and doing it in a way that's not good for that person. Mitzvah Baba Avera. Basically, yeah, but you look like the giver. You're the taker. The other situation where you can be the taker, but you're not really the taker, you're receiving, but you're the giver, is I think three different possibilities. One is you take in order to give. I remember observing the Satmarov when I was a teenager. He used to spend his winters in Miami. And I remember he wore a big robe with big, gigantic pockets, and they were filled with $100 bills. I remember thinking to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to be a Rebbe. This is a great parnasa. 
people would come with kviklach, with abrachas, and they were rich Hungarian Hasidim, and they gave him $100 bills, and he filled up his pockets with them. Then I saw the people who come with their problems, cry to him. He'd reach into the pocket, take a wad of bills and not even count them, and give it to the person until his pockets were empty. And then more people would come for brachas and fill his pockets. Then he would empty them. Could you say the Satmar Rebbe was a taker? He was a clearinghouse. He didn't have to give from himself, right? He took from those who wanted to give him in order to be able to give. Taking in order to give is called giving. That's one possibility. That's why Avram took from Paro. He had debts. He had a family to support, right? And he had debts to the to hotels he stayed in on the way to Mitzrayim. The Rabbanu promised he would make him rich. This is the way he made him rich that Paro gave him. If he wouldn't have taken, he wouldn't have been able to pay his debts or to support his family or to give. So he took in order to give. There's a second possibility how sometimes you have to respect somebody by accepting their presence. When I was started in Rabbanus, I decided I'm going to be a tzaddik. And Sony Matanus Yichya, and even though Balabatim have the custom of giving the rabbi things at various times in the year, Shalach Monas times, they had a little money. Mechiras uh, Chomets, they had money. They go to Eretz Yisrael, come back, and bring a present for the rabbi. But I made it clear that my policy was I don't accept presents. Please don't give me any presents. I just went on for about six months until an elderly father boss of mine came to me and said, Rabbi, you excuse me for being blunt, but you think you're a big tzaddik and you don't take presents, but you're insulting these people by not accepting their presence. They want the covet of giving the Rav a present and you're telling them your presence don't mean anything to me. You don't want to use it. You want to give it to somebody else. That's your business. Take it. Give them the covet of taking their presence. It's like an idea of Kedushin. There's an idea of an Adam Chashu. That if a woman gives a present to a man, right, and she's not in Chashu, she gets covered. You could be Makadashur with that, with that covered. So uh, he didn't have to convince me from then on to take presents. But in any case, that's the second idea. That's why Avram took presents from Avimelech. Avimelech was very embarrassed what he did. He wanted to save face. And he gave Avram, like, you know, uh, let's bury the hatchet. And if Avram would have refused it, he would have been insulting Avimelech. So taking there is is giving respect to the person who's giving you the present. The third thing is what we're talking about here, very important. In every relationship, there's a give and a take. Sometimes this one gives, sometimes the other one gives, and whatever. In a marriage, many times the Jewish mother-wife syndrome is that women like to be martyrs. They don't like to take they only like to give. I and mean, if you have a, enough food to feed an army and a husband and wife and their little child are sitting at the table and they serve the food and the wife says, no, 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 don't give me, give it to my child. Let me give it to your child. There's enough here for an army. If you eat, you're not going to bother anybody. But sometimes Jewish women like to be a martyr and they don't like to take. They only like to give. That is very nice, but it's not so nice. Because if you're always the ta- the giver and that relationship, then you relegate the other side to always being the taker and that's demeaning. Sometimes you have to take in order to enable the other one to give. That's that's g- enabling somebody to give is is giving them uh, the 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 the, the self respect that they can also be a giver. So uh, there's no idea that any side of the, of the relationship of a husband and wife should be a total giver, a to- total t- taker. There okay. should be a give and a take between them. 
You mentioned first that the woman is more prone to be the martyr, and then you mentioned husband and wife. A few weeks ago, we had a uh, a headline show on should a husband always give in to his wife's request? Is the husband always to blame when there are shalom bias issues, shalom bias problems? So th- there is a theory in shalom bias. I read a book and. Uh, we, we quoted it on, on last show, and that's not so much the subject of this show, but I'd like to get your input on that as well, that it's fully the man who is responsible for shalom bias problems. If there are issues, he's at fault fully. He needs to fully defer to the wife's desires to the extent that if he has a business meeting and she says, don't go, and it's a critical meeting, he just has to say not even to respond at all. And whatever his wife decides, uh, that is what it should be. And in addition, he can never any make any remarks, comments, or criticisms. There's, there's no, uh, seems like any conversation between the two. So, would you say that 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 is uh, this concept of not being an extreme giver applies both ways? Yeah. First of all, somebody actually wrote that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Would you like to know what book it is? Because I mean, I only got one complaint call when I mentioned the name That's of the book. It's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard in my life. The I, I, I told you before that if something sounds ridiculous and doesn't make sense, right? It's usually not Torah, but it's ridiculous and senseless. Um, I, 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 I'm aware of the book and the other books too. There are some things that are very nice in them, but I would not rely on them for Hashkofa in Yon. Um, this is absurd. The um, what I do say is, let me tell you one thing that I was medayik in a Rambam. The Rambam delineates the responsibilities of husbands to wives and wives to husbands in Perik uh, Tesvav, in the end of Perik Tesvav of Hilfus Ishus. And the Rambam says the following, A person should honor his wife more than he honors himself. And that means that not that he should give in to his wife all the time. What does it mean, Yosem Gufo? I think it means the following. There are certain things that women are concerned about and men are not concerned about, and vice versa also, right? Um, uh, I couldn't really care if what shade of yellow my, uh, my living room is painted or if it's painted at all, as long as I have a place to sit and there's lights, that's fine with me. My wife... Right, cares where the sofa is and what color the, the walls should be painted or whatever. If my wife comes to me and says, I, I think that we should repaint the, the, um, the, uh, the living room and which shade of yellow do you think we should do it? And she shows me a whole list of colors. Now, to me, it doesn't make one bit of difference. But if she's important to me and this is important to her, then I should respect her wants and needs. That's what it means, Yosemite Gufo. That doesn't mean I have to give in to her if she has ridiculous wants or needs, right? And then the Rambam says, and he should, oh, have okigufa, and should love her like he loves himself. When the Rambam speaks about the responsibilities of women, it says, A woman should honor her husband more than, more than is. What does that mean, more than is? Sometimes a woman knows how great her husband is, and he's not respected on the outside. Sometimes the opposite. People are respected on the outside, but the wife really knows he doesn't deserve all that COVID, really. She should respect him more than he is on the outside and more than she thinks so on the inside. She should go to the greater idea, but not that she should respect him when he wants to do something wrong. That's why it says, Ezer Kenegdo. Rashi says, if he's Zoha, if he wants to do something right, she should help him. If if he wants to do something wrong, connect them, then she should stop him from doing it. That's how she helps him. But the Rambam doesn't say that a woman has to love her husband. 
says the husband has to love his wife. The wife has to respect the husband. So I was thinking love is reciprocal. So here the Rambam is telling me who's the one who has to initiate that love, the husband. If he does, then Mamela, the wife, will love him too. But he's the one, at least in this area, the husband is the one to initiate the love. And love comes from many, many different things, from honoring, from respecting, from giving. And giving again sometimes means taking. So uh, that's that could be the husband's responsibility, but uh, to initiate this, but to, to be a shmata, nobody, nobody in this world has to be a shmata for anything. And everything is sometimes the husband is right, sometimes not. The Gemara says that um, it brings a, a contradiction. In one place, it says, the person who listens to his wife's advice falls into Gehenna. And then the Gemara says, is that true? When there's another Maimur Chazal, that if your wife is a midget, Bend down and listen to every word she has to say. So, which is it? So, Mara says, Lokasha, Kan Bemile de Alma, Kan Bemile de Shmaya. In spiritual things, the husband is the one to make the decisions. And in, in, in material things, the wife. Now, that can't mean that if we have to buy a sofa, then the wife decides. And if we have to know where to send our kids to school, the husband decides. Because I'll show you that's not the case. The Gemara says when they offered Rebbe ben Azaria to be the Nasi, he said, I have to ask my wife. The Chara, that's not Mila de Alma, that's Mila de Shmai. Why do I have to ask his wife? Right. So, right. The idea is the following. In, in practical things, women have more common sense and they're more practical. Bina, you say, Bina is more how to apply knowledge. Men are more theoretical, uh, the more, um, um, uh, what's it called, not uh, uh, ideas and theory or whatever. When it comes to things that are practical, the woman should be the main thrust. When it comes to ideas, hashkafas or whatever, they're the man should be. However, the ideal is they should discuss it between them and come to a common uh, decision. That's the ideal. But sometimes you can't do that. So then I would suggest to people that they go to a Rav or somebody, if it's not a, a Shiloh that has anything to do with Halacha or Hashkafa, they should go to somebody that they designate who's an objective person who will hear both sides and give them advice what they should do. Right? If in situations where that's also impossible, then somebody has to make the decision. That's what Chazal say. If there's no other way of coming to a joint decision and somebody has to, then in practical things, the wife should make the decision and in theoretical things, the husband should be. And so so that, would be, that would be the default. In other words, if there's a decision uh, and they can't uh, make the decision. Uh, but everything, the ideal is they should discuss it between them and come to what the best decision is. And if they need advice from the outside of objective people, they should go for that advice. It's only when there's no other answer. So then uh, somebody has to make a decision. Then the husband should should um, acquiesce to what the wife wants if it's practical things. And the wife should acquiesce to the husband if it's more theoretical things. Okay. So, Rev. Left, there are some college teachers that teach a, a theory on Shalom Bias called The Surrendered Wife. It was created by a non-Jewish woman called Laura Doyle. And there are actually some very from women who are acting as coaches, learning to be coaches to teach other women. And, and the theory is that the wife needs to surrender to her husband. Whatever he decides is what should be. She should make no comments. She should cede control to him, certainly about all issues that relate to him and including the family, maybe not her. She has to protect herself a little bit. So, so it, it, is this exactly against the Chazal that you're quoting? 
yeah, first of all, it's against Chazal. It's against any kind of common sense and doesn't make any sense. So it has what God will be Israel ever okayed such a philosophy. People are mushpa from Goyesha things. And even the Goyim don't believe in that. Right? Besides the fact, I can't understand what surrendering has to do with Shalom bias. You surrender in a war. You don't surrender when there's peace. So what in the world would anybody surrendering have anything to do with Shalom bias? So, uh, the, the, nobody has to surrender to anybody. People have to function together and do together what's best for both of them. And if there's a difference of opinion between them, then like I said, they should seek advice from an objective person to find out what is best. But for a woman to surrender to everything that a husband wants or whatever, especially if the husband wants something that's, that's wrong, right, is, is just, um, uh, promoting wrong and, and, and an Averis sometimes, which nobody could ever hold is okay. It's, it's promoting and perpetuating. There's a mitzvah of not with Neivr Losite Mikshol. How does that fit in with a husband's desires that may be completely off the wall or completely wrong? So a woman should surrender to that too. So she's over a few weeks sooner doing that. Right, right. It, and it perpetuates dysfunction. Yes, 100%. It's a, I think I can't believe that women coaches uh, do that. I could imagine that men coaches would, would promote such a thing, right? It's self-serving. But but women should do it. Again, that's maybe the, the more martyr syndrome. They like to be martyrs, so they like to be surrendered and uh, be a shmata too. Uh, but people should not be shmatas. They should only surrender when there's a war going on and uh, and do things that make sense, not things that sound ridiculous. Right. So, Rav Lev, just to end off, um, if you can walk us through, I'm very curious, what are some of the most common shalom bias questions that you receive and what aids do you give? Many times uh, it has to do with finances, uh, husbands or wives who uh, either are too uh, um, stingy or don't know how to manage their finances and go into debt. And each one has a time on the other one in that area. That's many times. Um, um, I, I saw once, I think, in Reader's Digest many years ago, that when someone says it's the principle and not the money, usually it's the money. So people argue on principles, but Lamaisa, the bottom line is finances. Um, in other areas, there's differences in um, how they bring up their children and uh, how to deal with, with uh, children problems, or uh, that's also very much... Uh, uh, becomes a shalom bias issue. And it's very important that parents are on the same page when it comes to disciplining their children and guiding their children. And uh, they should argue about it under behind closed doors, not in front of the children. They should have one common voice in front of the children. Um, those are mainly the, the, the main shalom bias things, uh, finances and, and um, child rearing in Yonin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would think just getting along together. Yeah, yeah. Look, two people are different. Uh, um, without working on it, uh, people don't have shalom bias. I think one of the big problems today, why there's so many divorces and so much problems, is because people are not willing to be committed and to work things out. Uh, even Kalas, Hassanim expect when they get married, they're going to have utopia. And if there's any problems, right away they think that that's dysfunctional and they want out. That somebody told me they don't give marriage licenses anymore. They give learner's permits. If people are not committed to anything, they'll try it out. If it works, fine. If not, uh, it's easy to get a get and try somebody else. And they 
constantly go from one spouse to another looking for utopia where there's no problems. There's only one place in this world where there are absolutely no problems. That's called a cemetery, right? You don't want to get there so fast. If you live in this world and you're living, so they're always, that's what this world is all about, solving problems and dealing with challenges. So if people understand that and they're committed to make it work, then they can work things out. They can work things out by getting help, professional help, by getting help, uh, whatever it may be. That's uh, another area, Taka, that, that affects Shalom bias is in-laws and outlaws, right? The um, parents who get involved in their children's Shalom bias, right, destroy that Shalom bias. And people come to me, they want to know uh, their mother, father, father-in-law, mother-in-law demand this, want this, and uh, how do they deal with that? And people basically have to know how to deal respectfully, but know that, you know, when we're under the chuppah, Masada Kedushin a lot. So um, when they, after they finish walking around seven times with the kala, I tell the mothers and the fathers, okay, you stand back now. And I say, and stay there for the rest of the lives of these children. You're there for them, but you're not close enough to mix in to their married life. You say that at the chasana. Yes, at the, under the chuppah. So I, I, I heard just to, to follow up on, on something that, that you said, the Marmar Chavzal is Kasha Kikriyas Yamsuf. It doesn't say Shiduchim, it says Zivugim. Shiduch is just matching the boy and the girl together, but Zivugim is ongoing. And I, I think I heard this from, from, from my rabbi friend, and he said that just like a business, unless you innovate and you work, you could have made a lot of money in the past and been effective and uh, productive. But if you start stop innovating and stop focusing on the business, you're going to go bankrupt. And he says the same thing when it comes to a marriage, a zivug, unless you concentrate and work at it, it could be a very productive, good relationship over many years. But once that focus is taken away, then uh, that is when it's really kasha kriyas yamsuf and things could, could end off not so good. Mamori, Mamori, that makes sense. So obviously they're true. Right. Rabbi Lev, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the schluss. Joining us now is Rabbi Ben Sion Shafir. Rabbi Shafir is a veteran mechanech and a noted expert in relationships, in particular marriage. He is the creator of the schmooze.com. He also runs Hashkafa workshops and marriage work seminars. Rabbi Shafir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, Rabbi Shafir, I, I need to tell you, I received a pre-publication copy of a book you're about to put out. It should be mm -hmm. within the next few weeks. I've read most of it. I'm about on page 200, and I am enjoying it tremendously. I'm, I'm not only well, saying that because you're on the show. I'm glad to hear it. Good. Um, Good. I greatly appreciate it. I'm looking forward to continuing it. So what inspired you to put out a Shalom Bayes book? Because there are a lot of books out there on the market, and... Uh, well, why do we need another one? That's only a good question. So I, I deal with a younger population. Uh, and over the past 10, maybe 15 years, I've dealt with hundreds of couples and couples who are literally killing themselves. And most of the time, there's no serious major issue. It's not like he's a drug addict. She's a shopaholic. It's not like they have any personality defects. It's just that they don't understand the mechanics of the marriage. Often they don't understand gender differences and they end up in such difficult straits and it doesn't have to be. So I wrote the book, hopefully to offer some direct Direction, some understanding of what a good marriage should be and what it requires and what, what's needed to actually put together a beautiful, healthy marriage. So Rabbi Shafir, couples come to you, men and women. So if I'm going to ask you, 
Who is responsible, more responsible for Shalom Vais? Is it the man or is it the woman? What would you say? It's an excellent question. So uh, the reason I think it's an excellent question is because it defines part of the problem. It comes to Yontif, and the woman does the cooking, the husband takes get a little of an esrog, and it's very clear division. Shalom Bayis is the essence of your life, your single most primary relationship. Everything you do, you're supposed to do together. You're a unit to say who's responsible. I don't know who's responsible to breathe, who's responsible to, uh, it's, you know, is it the heart or the lung? Which one do we need first? Which one should we give up? Meaning the unit called the husband and wife are each responsible to each other. When you stood under that chuppah, you made a pledge to honor, to take care of, to look out for the good. You joined together as one unit. So the answer is it's a dual responsibility, equally responsible. And that understanding, unfortunately, is often lacking. Ah, interesting. So I, I've seen uh, other Shalom Bayes books. I, I haven't read many, admittedly. But, but I have seen that certain Shalom Bayes experts write separate books for men and women. This is the men's, and there's a chayrim on it that only men can wear it, wear, read it, and women, chayrim, excommunicated, if you were to the same for the w- women one. Obviously, I've only read the men one then, so, uh, and the women one says, chayrim on men, you can't, men can't read it. So you didn't take that approach. And, and the question is as follows. So does one size fit all men, and I don't mean each couple, but does one book, <laughs> fit appropriately for both men and women, or do we need uh, to divide up additions for the genders? Okay, it's a very good point. And the truth is, there really should be two books, but there has to be one book. And I'll explain to you what I mean. In the marriage, a husband and a wife have different roles. And ultimately, in any marriage, there are different roles. And whether that be in terms of division of labor, or more importantly, division in emotional needs and what's required. However, if you don't understand what your spouse needs, there's no way you're going to be able to meet that need. Let me give you a good example. It is basic to a woman. She needs to know that she's loved. She needs to know that her husband cherishes her. I believe that 90% of Shalom Bayat's problems will be solved if a woman knows that her husband loves her. Problem is that women often do things that make it difficult for their husband to like them, let alone love them. But you see, both have to understand the need. So if you ask me who's responsible for the romance, it's the husband husband's job to romance his wife. However, the woman has to understand that as much that she has to do and much that she's responsible for the Shalom bias. And throughout any situation in the marriage, there are two sides to the coin and ultimately both have to understand each of their needs and each have to understand what the other one requires. Otherwise, you can't really work together as a unit. You can't be happily married. So, so I, I asked you before, and this is really a follow-up question, who's more responsible? You said they're both. This is the unit. And in fact, you have a, a quote in your book on page 131, just to show my, my Bacchus in your, in your safer. The essence of your relationship is the sense of being one. Okay? It's yeah. not separate entities, separate components. It is one. Now, there are <laughs> other theories of Shalom Bias. We had a prior show that talked about... Uh, the man being fully responsible for Shalom Bayis. And it went as far as saying that the deficiency that may be seen in the wife is the full fault, the sole fault of the husband. And it's fully incumbent on him and his responsibility, Shalom Bayis, whatever the wife desires. An example is she says, I don't want you to go into your business meeting and it's a critical business meeting. He can't go. He has to adhere to all for demands, requests, et cetera. The man is responsible. On the other hand, uh, on this show, we're more talking about uh, a theory of the woman, not so much being responsible, but taking responsibility, taking the shalom bias into her, 
her own hands. And uh, in other words, surrendering to his desires. That That is the, the other view. So it's either the man, he's it's incumbent on him. The woman is surrenders, he respond, surrenders. And, and you have neither of those concepts in, in your book. Doesn't exist in your book. And, and uh, a number of, of uh, paragraphs and concept, concepts cut directly against it. So what's your thought on, on those Theories: the man responsible, the woman responsible, the man being the shmata, the woman being the response. I, like I like that. Which one's the shmata? The both shmatas. Okay, so let, let's look at one simple chazal. We give a bracha to Rechasan and Kala from the Gemara Ksubis. Reim ahuvim, sameach to sameach, reim ahuvim. Best friends who love each other. That's how Rashi defines those words. The marriage relationship are best friends who love each other. <clears throat> friends support each other. Friends work together. <clears throat> the problem comes in. If you don't understand what your friend needs, if you don't understand their basic core essence, you're not going to be able to meet those needs and you're going to have a lot of strife and you're going to need books like Surrender and Give In, etc. because there are a lot of issues. I think when you begin to understand A, the mechanics of a marriage and B, gender differences and specifically what it is that your spouse fundamentally needs, I think a lot of these problems don't begin. Let me give you a good example just to make it clear. Men are constantly complaining that all we do is talk and women seem to contemplate, we never talk, we never talk, we never talk. Now, someone has got it wrong. Either you're talking all the time or you're never talking. And I think when you understand some of the gender differences, it becomes very clear and the solution really becomes very obvious. Typically, and you'll excuse me for being a little stereotypical here, but generally it's true. Women bond, women connect via speaking. That's how they form friendships. That's how they connect. You'll, a woman will be on the phone too. Oftentimes, I'll ask a young man, before you were married, how much time did you spend on the phone with your friends talking about you know, your life? 10 minutes a day? maximum. Ask a young woman, how much time do you spend on the phone talking to your friends? Two hours a day? Because women connect, they bond. That's how they foster relationships and that's how they connect with their friends. Now, the difference between men and women in terms of relationships often surfaces in this manner. A man will be happily married. He's very happily married and his wife isn't. And I'll come into my room and I'll ask them, I'll turn to him, I'll say, how's your marriage? I'll turn to her, how's your marriage? It's horrible. It's terrible. Wait, are you guys married? like to each other? And the answer is because he does not understand her core fundamental need. To connect, to bond, she needs to talk, she needs to converse. It's through conversation that she feels connected. Now that's an understanding that both of them have to understand. He has to understand that he has to share with his wife, to explain to her where he went, what he's doing, what he's involved in. And she has to also understand that likely he's not going to meet as much of her conversational needs as possible, not because he doesn't love her, but because he works differently. And <clears throat> both understand that they're able to find the medium point, they're able to work together, they're able to create a shalom bias. But if each of them don't understand the other, and they end up with these walls between them, and they're very distant, each one blaming the other, each one feeling the other one is deficient. So then, if you have to understand each other, how do you have two different books then that institutionalize different rules that the other one is not even allowed to know about? Uh, I'm not sure I can answer <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough question. Um, I'm not sure I can answer it. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is value. You see, there is a lot of value in, in a man reading a book that explains him what he needs to do to make his wife happy. And there's also a lot of value in a woman reading a book about what she needs to make a husband happy. However, I don't believe that's the solution overall. It's helpful, beneficial, and you can learn good things. I'm sure both of these books have a lot of value to offer and you can definitely gain from them. And the problem is if you're not able to cross the divide, then you're not going to really be able to fundamentally build a solid marriage. You see, I think the biggest obstacle we all have in any relationship, forget marriage, is the problem that I call being mind blind. Mind blind means I 
experience things, and that experience is reality. The way I feel, the way I look at things, the way I value things, that's reality. And everyone else feels the same way because that's just the simple reality. And it obviously, if you don't feel that way, if you don't view things that way, you don't look at things that way, but I'm incapable of understanding that you have a different world point, you have a different viewpoint than I, then we'll never be able to bridge the gap. The single most important thing in terms of living together is being able to understand your spouse, understanding why is it that he gets all bent out of shape. All I did was I corrected him. So what's the big deal? Why does he get all bent out of shape? You see, the problem is before we listen to the answers, we already know the answer. It's because he's, and we have that whole story, the demonization. And I believe if you don't understand your spouse, there's no way you could climb into their world and no way you can meet their needs. And you're not going to have much of a Shalom bias solution. So I would, you know, again, the books written separately has value. But again, I certainly wouldn't do it. The proof of the pudding is I didn't do it that way. And I wrote one book for both because, again, whether it's the man's role that he has to work on, the woman's role that she has to work on, each has to understand the differences and understand what it is that's causing the friction and what it is that they each need. So then they can come together and hopefully create a perfect proper balance. Right. So page 144, I'll quote you again. Two sides to communication. He has to understand her and she has to understand him. So that's why we have one book. Uh, so so uh, let's mm-hmm. take it to the next level. When there are issues, when there are issues and uh, one wants to explain to the other what is bothering her, what is bothering her. So if we look at the alternative theories, um, the ones that we're talking about here in particular today, the surrendered wife, um, the view of the surrendered wife is that a man cannot handle feedback. He lacks emotional maturity. So if a wife attempts to inform him even gently of his, uh, his lackings, it will not wind up well for the communal good. So let her just surrender. That would be the one theory. The, the surrendered husband theory, and I'll, I'll read from the book, um, says on page 58, for a woman to admit a, to a mistake or shortcoming is worse than death. So therefore do anything to protect her dignity, which like oxygen is the source of her vitality, <clears throat> taking away her dignity is consequently tantamount to threatening her life. And it goes on to say that uh, he, you know, a husband, uh, it's, it's late of the book. He can't understand why she can't admit that the food is burnt. The whole kitchen smells like charcoal. So, so there, there are theories, and it's what's very interesting to me is the the, uh, the 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 male-centric theory of he's responsible for everything has the view that a female can't handle any admission to shortcoming. Don't give her any musr. Don't even be gentle with you know for the most part. And the surrendered wife has the same negative view on men. So where do you come down? Is it negative on both or positive on both or somewhere in the middle? So it's, it's even worse than that. Number one, I think they both got it right. We human beings hate criticism. We hate it. We abhor it. We detest it. We crave praise and we hate criticism. That's a human trait. That's basic endemic to the human. That's well, let's call that exhibit A. That's the first problem you have in any relationship. The problem with the marriage is it's far worse because we 
invariably, we can't help but notice what our spouse does wrong. I can't help but notice she's late, or I can't help but notice that he's sloppy, or I can't help but notice that she's always bouncing the checks. And I want to explain to you why this is, and this is integral to understanding a successful marriage. I have a given nature, temperament, and inclination, and you have a very different nature, inclination, and temperament. If you and I are different, if you take a husband and a wife, they're men and women, and the gender divide is so wide and so vast that it's impossible possible that they're not going to feel differently, look at things differently, view things differently. And it's impossible that he's not going to have strengths and she's not going to have weaknesses. He's not going to have weaknesses and she's not going to have strengths. And here's the interesting part. Let's assume for a minute that I'm, I'm always on time and I value that. And my wife isn't. I can't help but notice all the time that she's late and she'd be so much more effective and she'd be so much more efficient and life would go so much smoother if she were on time. And so I can't help but point it out to her and I can't help but let her know it. And I can't, as nice a guy as I am, as careful as I am, I can't help but see it all the time, all the time. And more than that, for the life of me, I can't understand why doesn't she just get it together? Why doesn't she just be on time? Now, and likely the reason why I'm on time is because that's my nature. That's my temperament. Likely the reason she's not is because guess what? That's not her nature. That's not our temperament. But you see, because it's my nature, it's easy to me. Number one, <clears throat> I view it as something that's simple. Why doesn't she just, why can't she just get it together? And more than that, it bothers me so much because it's the hallmark of my existence. It's something I pride myself on. So when she doesn't do it, it bothers me so much. Now, I believe that there are three core principles to any successful marriage. And number one, commitment. That means commitment to the marriage. Number two, the love in the marriage, the relationship. And number three, learning to live together. The biggest obstacle in terms of learning to live together is learning that my experience is my experience. The way I view things is the way I view things, but my spouse likely doesn't. And getting used to the fact that my spouse does things differently than I, that my spouse perforce has to do things differently because she's a different person. The problem is that because I'm so used to doing things my way, I feel this incredible need to help my wife, even if I'm a good guy. And even if I sincerely love her, I can't help but notice how she does things that just aren't efficient. And I can't help but want to help her and point it out. So the problem with criticism is, number one, we hate criticism incredibly. But number two, if you're going to allow it to come into your marriage, it's going to be incessant because it's going to be invariable that there's so many things that you each do differently. And we spend so much energy, so much effort trying to change our spouse and it never works. So the bottom line is both books got it right. We human beings crave approval, hate criticism, especially the danger in marriage is the minute I am allowing myself to criticize. And there's that word, can't help but do it all the time because it's little stuff. It's being helpful, but it's little stuff. It's all the time. And it's it's a toxic, it erodes a relationship and it's going to come up over and over and over. And by the way, again, if you don't think I'm right, just study any couple. This incredible need to change my spouse is just so prevalent and so pervasive. So Rabbi Wasserman, I guess I'd say the long and short of it is both books got it right. And the moral of the story is you work on you. Hashem gave you strengths, talents. Hashem put you on a planet to grow and accomplish. You work on you. You keep your eyes on your end side of Mechitza. Don't change your spouse. You can barely change you. Forget about your spouse. You do that and you'll have a much better marriage. Good, uh, Rabbi Shafir. It's it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, really a, a privilege. And uh, love to have you back on the show to speak about other issues as it relates to Shalom Bayis. Be my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye bye.
Joining us now is Mrs. Elisheva Liss. Mrs. Liss is a New York-based licensed marriage and family therapist. She is the author of the book, Find Your Horizon of Healthy Thinking. She's a lecturer, a blogger, creator of several digital courses. And if you want to access her content, it's all available at elishevaliss.com. Mrs. Liss, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Mrs. Liss, we're talking about shalom bias, but something specific about shalom bias, a couple of theories about the uh, a wife surrendering, and uh, we have theories about husband surrendering. I actually saw a blog that you wrote, wives, please don't surrender. So obviously I know what direction you're going in there. Wives, please don't surrender. Can you start out by telling us what's this concept of surrendering? What's the submissive wife? And, and where does this concept come from? Yes, sure. So the surrendered wife and submissive wife, we can, for all intents and purposes, we can use the phrases pretty interchangeably. Um, it, it really comes from a Christian line of thinking. It's based on an actual quote from the New Testament, wives surrender to your husbands, like Jesus surrenders to God. And, um, and, and it's really just based on this, on this premise that um, if the only way to have a good marriage is for women to be subservient and surrendered to their husband's authority unconditionally. And in recent years, I think there have been some Jewish movements to try to adapt and apply this approach um, you know, to Jewish communities. And these, these books and blogs have titles like, your husband doesn't want your opinion, pretend you love your husband more than your children, communication is overrated, dishonesty is the best policy, uh, a myth of verbal abuse, your husband is better with money than you are, you know, all of these things that sort of like to anyone with a little bit of a background in couples therapy is like covered in red flags, but it has become very popularized and very mainstream and very destructive, in my opinion. Now, now th this is a, a, it's a book written by a lady, right? L L Laura Doyle, right? Yes, Laura Doyle wrote the book, The Surrendered Wife, but I can't put all the blame on her because it's, it's, a, it's a movement that's bigger than her. <laughs> um, and, and certainly within, within Orthodox communities, I don't, I don't even know if she knows <laughs> what's going on there. Um, you know, there's, there's actually a really like confusing, disturbing movement in, in the uh, sort of far right Christian communities called domestic discipline, trying to sort of reactivate a husband's wife to a husband's right to discipline his wife, even, even corporally. Wow. Uh, so, so this concept of a wife submitting, what exactly does that mean? That, does that mean that if the, cus, uh, the husband decides X, Y, Z is happening, she will say, yes, sir, or yes, my lovely husband or something like that. Whatever he says goes, is that, that I mean, that's what submission kind of means. Yes. So I think if you would speak to the people who promote this and who are in charge of the PR, they have all these qualifiers and defense, you know, sort of defenses saying, well, we don't mean completely, not entirely. You have to use your like sort of inner feminine wisdom to um, be strategic and manipulate and figure out how to use your kind of feminine wiles to get your husband to see things your way. But it's, it's sort of a power play game. It's kind of like a one up, one down position. So yeah, the, the ostensible dynamic is um, do what your husband says. Um, she has this approach called uh, clean up your side of the road. So if your husband is raging, if he's, you know, yelling and name calling and cursing at you. So just kind of ask yourself, what could I have done that may have precipitated this behavior? So you, are, you, the woman is blaming herself. Is that what it means? Correct. It's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a form of victim blaming. Okay. And, and, and what is this trying to accomplish ultimately to have him in control and being the ball of bias and her subservient, or is there more going on that meets the eye here? Yeah. So I think that the, there's branding, you know, <laughs> I think the, the original iteration of this was just sort of chauvinistic. It was sort of like, someone's got to be the captain of the ship. So, you know, it, if marriages are, are 
uh, intention, right? If there's fighting and uh, we can't decide who should make the final call. So let the husband have the final authority and then there doesn't have to be fighting, right? But I think the rebranding of this is being promoted as, you know, they kind of relabeled it empowered, uh, the empowered wife. And, but the empowerment is sort of saying like, okay, do whatever your husband wants you to do, make yourself small so that he will do what you want him to do. It's like the, the language that they use is to become a ridiculously happy wife. So she should submit in order for him to start giving her what she wants. Is it like yeah, reverse, the, reverse psychology type of thing going on here? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I think the idea is, and I know by the way, that anybody who might be listening to this, who is a, a chassid of the surrendered wife approach and all the different you know permutations of it might find this hard to hear, especially if it's something that you've used and you feel was helpful to your marriage. So I was careful in the blog post and in general, I did a lecture on it, uh, you know, online as well with a, with a colleague, Rachel Tuckman to say that, you know, if you read this book or, or any of the, yeah, you know, offshoots of the book and you applied some ideas from it and it was helpful and you think you have a healthy and happy marriage, there's no need to undo your work. But you know, the, uh, the amount of uh, emails and private messages that I got talking about how damaging this book was, and to me, what feels like common sense about how damaging the the ideas behind it are, um, make me feel like I need to speak out against it as a couples therapist and as a member of the Orthodox community where I see this approach being more popularized. Uh, now, the emails that you got, and obviously, uh, in your work, when you get uh... When, when you get feedback from clients on this, is it from the women who regret submitting because the husband was uh, domineering? Or is it maybe from the husband that felt being used and worked over by like, what are the, what are the complaints that you're hearing? And, and from whom? Yeah. So I tend to work more with women in general. That's just my style. It's my practice, my approach. So I'm going to end up hearing more from women, but I've actually heard plenty of men, you know, when I work with couples or just some feedback that I've gotten emails and, you know, in collaboration with colleagues who felt the same way that this approach is disrespectful to both genders, honestly. Uh Now, what are some of the underlying assumptions of this theory, I guess, vis-a-vis men and vis-a-vis women? What's, what's the concept and why aren't we just having an open communication? So what's, what's going on here that uh, we have to have this theory of of, of submitting. Yeah. So it seems to assume that, um, you know, women have to keep quiet as much as possible, not to be too assertive, not to be d- too direct, that the male ego is is too fragile for women to just sort of like communicate and collaborate, um, that, that it, it pits women as the gatekeepers of the relationship's well-being. Um, and, and they'll say this even in cases where men are known to be uh, abusive, narcissistic, um, serial uh, adulterers, cheat, you know, um, addicts, you know, behaviors that are, you know, very much in need of, of professional help. But they'll say, like, you can cure any of this by just submitting, which is really, really dangerous, um, that women can and should shrink themselves to make space for uh, you know, their husband's pride. And that by doing that, they can sort of like, then win their husbands over to get them to do what they want. Um, and they will say like these, like, uh, um, alluring, sweeping, uh, in- inaccurate gender stereotypes, like, you know, men need respect, and women need love, which is, you know, obviously, both genders need both. I mean, I don't know why we have to choose between our emotional needs. But that's, you know, I think a lot of that is the underlying premise. So what you're saying is, even if you have a husband that's doing terrible things, yeah, I mean, it could be abuse, gambling, drugs. You should just submit to that. Isn't there a concept of an intervention when somebody is doing that type of things that you you need to intervene and try to get them back on the derech? Right. So, I mean, they they would say that's the intervention, you know, kill them with kindness kind of thing. 
Sheval Tase. Just sit back and watch how he destroys <laughs> himself and the family. How about when you have kids that are involved here? Do you, do you also sit back when, when kids are involved and he's making bad decisions for them and the schools that they go to and how he treats them? So it's, it's a good question. You know, I'm not an expert on this approach, but I, I would I would venture to say, like any extremist movement, there are people all along the spectrum. So the radical uh, submission submission people would sort of say, like, you know, like the corruption of Ishak Sheros or Bala, you know, just like whatever he says, just do it. It'll be blessed. Right. <laughs> But but I'm, I'm sure there are people who would say, well, no, if he's being physically aggressive, so there you have to take action. But one of the things that this approach does say is that there's no such thing as verbal abuse. Like you should just sort of like, you know, sort of say, it's okay, ouch, you know, ouch, that was hurtful, you know, kind of like keep it calm um, and give like gentle feedback, you know, and, and not engage in any kind of argument. Uh-huh. So, so what I'm hearing is this is a wife surrendering, but somehow she's trying to be empowered by getting her way, obviously, that's not going to be effective if she's not doing anything. She's just being uh, submissive. What are the typical results of following this theory? Somebody who follows the theory and uh, believes in the theory and a woman follows through and does exactly the protocol, what's going to happen? So I guess, you know, people will say, you know, but it works or does it work or doesn't it work? And I, I think it depends what you call having it work, right? Like if you give in to a toddler that's tantruming, right? The kid's going to stop crying in the short term, but we all know how that ends, right? If you just keep always giving into a tantrum, right? So if your goal is to have a woman who is not expressive, doesn't attend to her own needs, not being honest, not being authentic, um, and potentially enabling abuse, then yeah, then that it works, right? Um, I mean, obviously, I'm being facetious. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I think there are times where people will say it worked, because let's say you have a woman who was herself, maybe a little bit domineering, or very, let's say, abusive or domineering, and you give her the surrendered thing, you know, the surrendered message, then it could be that she needed sort of like a dose of like, hey, stop, you know, verbal beating up on your husband and so she'll say oh this is this approach is magic because you know she stopped treating her husband poorly and things got better so i think there are times and again just because something did the trick doesn't mean it was healthy advice right if i co- take cocaine i'm gonna feel good that doesn't mean it's a good idea right um <laughs> uh but you know but there that's why i think there are some people who will say it was really great i think there are also people who are in denial right so they'll say like you know, my husband stopped treating me horribly because I did everything he told me told me to do. So right, I guess, in the sense of him getting to stop treating her horribly, that worked. But like, is this a healthy relationship? So there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot of, you know, different variations of how this could play out. But I think when we're analyzing the kind of content, the kind of information, the kind of behavior that we're recommending for people, and we have a very big responsibility as uh, professionals or people, any people of influence, educators, and, you know, rabbinim and college teachers to sort of make ourselves knowledgeable about the broader data and say that just because there are, are a handful of people who will wax evangelical about something because, you know, the language is appealing or there were extreme cases where it was applied in a way that was, you know, ended up having a happy ending doesn't mean that it's something that needs to be uh, promoted or that's healthy to promote for everybody. Right. So a, a husband or wife or a couple come to you and they're having a shalom bias issue. Yeah. Do you have an overriding theory that you deal with or how, how do you try to to crack the issues? How do you try to cut through what's going on there? Is there is there a theory, a concept, a principle? Or is this a matter of we need to learn how to communicate, which is actually a, a lost art nowadays in the in the uh, generation of the, of the smartphone and the uh, email and the on um, behind years and years, there's a not even texting, but whatever they call the WhatsApping and that kind of stuff. So, so is this a lost art communication? Is that the right thing that we should have? Or, or is there some other overriding theory that, that uh, you would advise? 
you know, it, this is the, this is a time period, which is so fascinating because anything can become controversial. So if you read the couple's literature, you know, the marriage and family, I, I'm assuming you're asking me as Ellie Shovelis, not as if I'm speaking for someone who's promoting this surrender submissive yes, wife approach. Yes, yeah. 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 Like, like for me, a right. couple therapist. Right. Right. My, what I would endorse. Um, so, so, you know, there are like whole articles, probably whole books that talk about like, forget about communication. That's not really where it's at, but I would tend to agree with you and say, yes, there's a lot more to marriage than only communication. Cause it's not just, you know, we got to action sometimes speak as loud or louder than words, but yeah, I think communication is a huge piece. One little, little piece that I would love to share just cause it's, uh, two, two little pieces that I would love to share wisdom that I've gotten from different trainings that I've been to. <laughs> um, one of them is, it's just a quote. I heard it from, from, uh, Terrence Real, who's a couple's therapist I admire. And uh, he, but I don't know if he's the, you know, it was his Kiddush. If somebody else may have said it first, um, try turning complaints into requests. So I think, you know, oh, there, try turning. I should say it slower because it's really important. Try to turn complaints into requests. And the reason I think that's such a brilliant piece of advice is because it transcends the couple relationship, really in any relationship. You know, you're, you're talking to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, an employee, your kid's school. You know, you have something that you want to complain about and there's a problem. Stop and say, you know what? Nobody really wants to be the repository of my complaints. Um, what do I really want to change? What, you know, stop telling me what you're annoyed about and tell me what you want me to do for you, right? And of course, there are times where you just have to share your negative feelings and that could be okay. But for the most part, when I'm coming with some kind of gripe, some kind of tininess, something going on that bothers me to sort of say, okay, you know what, instead of a complaint, how can I morph it into a, a request? So I think that's, you know, it's it's just a little nugget, but it's it's a beautiful one, you know? Uh, and then there's another one that's by a therapist by the name of Dan Weil, another really great thinker in the field. And he talks about there are three primary ways that people tend to engage with conflict. The first one is adversarial, right? Being argumentative. The second one is avoidant, right? We get like passive aggressive and grumpy and quiet and stonewally. And the third way, which is going to be obviously the preferable way is what he calls collaborative, right? So, you know, if we were looking back at the submissive wife concept, right? And we say, you know, adversarial would be the bullying spouse, like, you know, kind of barking orders, telling them what to do, making somebody else's life miserable because they're not doing what I want. That's adversarial. It's belligerent, right? Avoidant would be that sort of like, like, I forgot what it's called, but like when you're putting yourself in a victim position, so you're, you're getting power like that, like a, 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 a step down victim position of power. Um, and that's avoidant. Like, I'm just going to be like, you know, surly and grumpy and sullen and just kind of like not engage very much. And that's also like a form of like kind of fighting quietly. Um, and the third way is collaborative to sort of say, hey, you know, is there a good time to talk? Because there's something important on my mind that I want to address and just kind of say it like in, in a, you know, with, with the, with the background and the foundation of I love you, you love me we care about each other and let's figure this out together. So I'm not the problem. You're not the problem. The problem is the problem. And once we're coming with this like sort of mature collaborative approach, it's like, oh, we're on the same team. Let's just do this. And I guess that's what you go through when you have a couple dealing with issues is let's put the issues on the table and let's discuss it. And I like that. You're not the problem. We have a problem that we have to deal with and let's discuss the problem, not discuss you per se. Group effort. I had, I had a cute story. I was working with a Hasidish couple once that was recovering from an infidelity episode. And um, they had been to someone who had promoted sort of a, a, a kind of a surrendered wife, which is kind of telling the wife, like, if you want to keep your husband happy, then you just need to do whatever he says, and then he won't stray. And they were recovering from the trauma of that kind of, it was, yeah, it was a non, an unlicensed uh, pseudo professional who was giving them this advice. And she had gone into a depression because she was feeling so disempowered, so disenfranchised. And, um, and he was sort of like, he was confused because he, in his heart, was a good guy. He knew he'd messed up and he was being empowered by this person who was advising them to like, yeah, you know, you just have to stand up for your rights so that you get your needs met in your marriage. And it's like, this isn't right. And so, you know, thank God they ended up coming for actual license there. 
therapy. <laughs> um, and we talked about it, but I could tell he was a little skeptical because I had to do a lot of damage control, you know, making space for her feelings and her anger and like all this stuff that hadn't been allowed to come out. Um, and he wasn't used to that. And so he turned to me and he said, you know, he could tell I'm not myself Hasidish. And so sometimes there's like a trust building that has to happen in, in those, you know, scenarios, not always, but sometimes. And he's like, I just want to ask you something like, who do you believe is like in charge in a relationship? Like, who do you think is like supposed to run the show, the husband or the wife? And I was like, okay, I'm being tested right now. <laughs> um, and I said that and we laughed. And I said, I said, I'll tell you the truth. I think the nicest marriages are where we're not looking to see who's in charge. I think the nicest marriages are when each party is looking to say like, I matter and you matter. And I really want you to be happy. And I want to figure out how I can contribute to making you happy without sacrificing my happiness. And when that's a dynamic in a relationship, we don't even have to come onto the question of who's in charge. Wow. Um, he, he was okay with that answer. <laughs> And how did things end up there? Um, I think they've, they've had like three kids since then. She sends me really beautiful letters every Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's nice to have a nice ending. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, and they're good people. You know, I've made a mistake and they got bad guidance, but they're good people. And I think deep down, most people are good people. But I, I think that that's why it makes such a difference, especially when you're dealing with people who are not necessarily in the field, that those of us who are in the fields, multiple fields of guidance, know the right materials to send their way because it's, it's a very big responsibility. Very good. Well, Mrs. Liss, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. Joining us now is Sara Yocheved Riegler. Mrs. Riegler is a world-renowned author. She is a household name, certainly in our household. She has just released a new book entitled, I've Been Here Before, When Souls of the Holocaust Return. It's all about Gilgal Neshamas. She has taught a marriage webinar for seven years. You can find information on her website, sarariegler.com. That's S-A-R-A, Riegler.com. Mrs. Riegler, thank you so much for joining us. Very happy to be here, Rabbi Wasserman. So, Mrs. Riegler, we'd obviously love to hear about the webinar and what you teach the women, but I'd like to start elsewhere, related, but elsewhere. There was a woman a number of years ago named Laura Doyle. She wrote a uh, very successful book. She didn't call it Shalom Bias. She's not Jewish, but it was about Shalom Bias, some form of Shalom Bias. And she called it The Surrendered Wife. It became a huge hit. Subsequently, she brought, wrote another book called First Kill All the Marriage Counselors. But we'll leave that aside for now. The surrendered wife. Can you walk us through what's the concept of the surrendered wife? Ultimately, we like to hear about how what you agree with and what you disagree with in, in uh, the surrendered wife book. So Laura Doyle, who is not Jewish, she made a real revolution in the whole approach to marriage. Until that point, there was always the sense of it takes two to tango. And so people would try to go, you know, go to the marriage counselor together as a couple. And, you know, and my husband, how can I do anything if my husband doesn't cooperate? And why should I do, you know, everything? Because, you know, he should do 50% and I'll do 50%. And, uh, you know, he's not doing 50%, so I won't do anything. And that was the attitude. And Laura Doyle came along and said, no, a wife by herself can change her marriage. And that was a revolutionary idea. And it was a true idea. And she really, and she gave examples in her own life. She started with her own life. She had a very bad marriage and, uh, and she turned it into a good marriage by doing the techniques that she talks about. Um, the, the advertising for the surrendered wife brandished its goal as to become desired, cherished, and adored for life. And every woman wants to be desired, cherished, adored for life. So, okay, go for it. Good and marketing. Great marketing. <laughs> Great marketing. And, uh, and, and the, the attitude, her, her idea 
was that a critical controlling wife ruins her marriage, which is also, this is truth, you know, Hachma Bugayim. And she had, the, and the idea was that with the right tools, a wife can single-handedly transform her marriage, which is also true. And, uh, and the goal, that she, and this is what she writes in, in The Surrender Wife, you'll return to being the goddess of fun and light, just like you were when you first fell in love, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so, you know, these are all things that are very, very attractive. And she ended up getting, uh, that book was translated into 16 languages, was sold in 27 countries. And, um, and she has 100, last time I checked, which was a few years ago, she had 150,000 followers, you know, so uh, she's probably much more now. And, um, and, and the thing that was so amazing is that um, in the from world, many, many from women were like just eating up Laura Doyle and trying and wanting to become a Laura Doyle teacher. She, you know, she has teacher training and, uh, and it was, it, it made, it made a very big hit among uh, from women. And now what's the method that you, cause obviously that's a great goal to become cherished and desired by your husband. How do you go about doing that? And, and what is that, phrase the surrendered wife mean does that mean she's surrendering to her husband anything he wants goes and that's why he's going to come and cherish and desire her well it means she's going to stop criticizing and, and controlling things um there are many women who are very efficient and practical more more efficient and practical than their husbands and they end up like paying the bills and doing lots of things around the house and that's what in her case she was uh, she was taking charge of the finances. I don't know if her husband had ADD. A lot of men have ADD in this generation, and uh, and they don't have executive function. More women, more men than women suffer from ADD. So if they lack executive function, and the woman comes along, and you know she she can pay the bills on time. So so Laura Doyle did an experiment when she didn't see it as an experiment. She said she decided she wasn't going to take control of the finances. She gave control to her husband, and and he was supposed to pay the bills, and the result was course that he ignored all the pink notices from the electric company and the and finally they turned off the electricity and uh but she didn't budge you know and uh and ultimately he he just he did he took control and the idea isn't surrendered like you become obsequious she's not advocating to be obsequious she's advocating to to let the man be in control of, of certain areas, for example, finances, and, uh, and, and the wife to stop criticizing and controlling. It was a very, it's actually a very good idea. Uh-huh. So, so she is, I mean, I read some of the, the reviews and the principles of it. So one of the six principles is a wife relinquishes control of her husband's life, which means uh, leave the husband, let him do what he wants, don't comment, don't criticize. And husbands can't handle negative feedback anyway. That's one of the premises of, of, of the book, which I felt was a, a little bit negative towards men, that uh, you can't handle the feedback and men lack emotional maturity. But maybe part of that is true, but it, maybe it depends the man. Um, but but how does this all work out that she relinquishes control? She respects his decisions when there are kids and there are mutual decisions that have to be made that have ramifications, not just for the husband, but for the whole family. I don't know, because I'm not a Laura Doyle follower. Um, very early on, like before. Before her other books were, were published, when just the surrendered wife was out, um, I I mean I'll, I'll tell you the story of what happened. I was teaching uh, I think my gratitude uh, workshop at a Haredi um, hotel at a, a hotel where Haredi women the Dead Sea there was a 
a retreat for Haredi women. And I was brought in to teach my gratitude workshop. And um, one day at tea time around the table, I noticed uh, my friend, Tefila Buxbaum, she was teaching from this book. And it was she wasn't one of the formal teachers as I was. She was doing this informally. And there was just a group of women around the table. This was in English. Um, a lot of the, most of the women there were Hebrew speakers, but there were English speakers. I gave my work, workshop in English. And um, and one of the women sitting around and listening was uh, Rebetzin Rezi Arbach, the uh, the daughter-in-law of Shlomo Arbach, as that's and afterwards, uh, Rebetzin Arbach asked Tefila for the um, to look at the book overnight, and she and she gave it to her. And the next morning, she said to her, "This author has a lot of good ideas, but you cannot teach Yiddish and Neshamas from a Goyish book. You should write a Jewish version of the Surrendered Wife." And um, Re- and Tefila answered, "I can't. I'm not a writer." And Rebetzin Arbach said, "Then get Sario Hevid Rigler to do it." So that's how the two of them approached me. And I, okay, write a book, a Jewish version of The Surrendered Wife. So at that point, I started, you know, I read the book. I started uh, developing. I went to Art Scroll, my publisher, and asked them, uh, you know, I said, I want to write a book about marriage, Jewish version of The Surrendered Wife. And uh, Mr. Shmuel Blitz, the Art Scroll rep here in Jerusalem, said, you can't write a book about marriage. You're not a Rebison. You're not a marriage counselor. Uh, you don't have any credentials. You should start giving workshops. And then people will come and tell you their stories and then you'll have what to say. So I started, so I developed this uh, thing called the Kesher Wife Workshop, Kesher from being connection. Uh, I had been by that point more than 10 years in a Musravad with Rob Leib Kellerman, based mostly on the teachings of Rav Shlomo Wolba. And, uh, and, I, and I incorporated, I took the basic concepts of Laura Doyle like that a wife alone by herself can change her marriage. You don't need to do the tango. And, uh, and also to stop, you know, with the criticism and correction, I started, I started the very first tool is don't commit the three sins. I spelled sins C-I-N-S because all three sins start with the letter C, criticizing, correcting, controlling. And, uh, and that's where it started. But I, from there, I, I, like it took off with, you know, with, with, with Jewish Torah-based concepts based mostly on Musser and, um, and things where the motive was different. And at that point, at some point, you know, uh, I gave this workshop live to over 2,000 women on five different continents. <laughs> and wow. uh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yes. And, and women all, um, they all, uh, it was really eye opening for them because um, the, the basic premise was the only person you can change is yourself. Women always want to change their husbands. Husbands, male, I don't know if husbands, I don't work with men, but I work with women and women always want to change their husbands. But the idea that the only person you can change is yourself is a real uh, revolutionary concept. And this was also Laura Doyle. Also, you, the woman, it's up to the woman herself. She can change her marriage. Right. So, so walk, walk us through, the, the, that's the fundamental theme or one of the fundamental themes of the surrendered wife. And, and similarly, that's something that you adopted from, from her approach is you can only change yourself. You can't change your spouse. You, and certainly you can't change a man. Um, but um, where do you diverge from her? But I want to say what the second part of our, our motto is, and when I say our, after years of schlepping all over the world, giving this uh, marriage workshop, Jewish eBooks was trying then to get into like a webinar thing. And I was the first try. They just said they had approached me to give a marriage webinar. And at that point, 
I stop traveling and just I sit in my living room here in the old city of Jerusalem. And once a week, I give a webinar. I've been giving this webinar uh, for seven years. And I have to say that the wonderful thing about it is that nobody changes from even the, my webinar, my workshop was a three hour live thing with life size, you know, posters and things like that. But nobody changes from any three hour thing. You have to have a continuous thing of program of working on yourself like in Musser. So, uh, so the webinar, the webinar people join it, they do the, the workshop, which is like what they call the four master classes, but then it's every week. And uh, so we've been doing that for seven years and, and it's with Jewish uh uh, workshops, Jewish, uh, yes, called uh, Jewish workshops or H webinars. Anybody who's interested can go on my website, sarahrigler.com, and it's right there on the homepage. So, um, so when I say we, I'm referring to the, what I call the Kesher Wife Club of Jewish workshops. So um, how do I differ from Laura Doyle? Well, the main thing is that <laughs> Laura Doyle does not have, look, all Judaism is based on the first of the Ten Commandments. So, I am the Lord your God, right? Hashem is the only operative force in the universe. That is the basics of everything. That's the basis of everything. So, and she, and God is not in her picture. Um, the only thing I, I, when I, I bought her second, I, uh, I bought the book, uh, first call all the marriage counselors, uh, on a, a, an ebook. With an ebook, you can do a search for different words. So I decided to do a search for the word God to see if God appears in her system. And the only, the word God appeared only, uh, only once in the book where she talks about the serenity prayer. You know, uh, may I have the, uh, you know, uh, what acceptance to, to, you know, to accept what I cannot change and, and the courage to change what I can change and the wisdom to know the difference. So God is mentioned there once, but three times in the book, she, the, the word goddess appears <laughs> and because she refers to, and it's her goal, the goddess of fun and light. You can become by following her system, the goddess of fun and light that, and, uh, and she writes, and this is a quote from, uh, from her book, uh, Kill the Marriage Counselors, over time have come to appreciate that it's actually more enjoyable to be the goddess of fun and light than it is to be the woman who knows everything. So the problem with taking God out of the picture, and you don't get 150,000 followers in the larger world and having your book translated into 16 languages, um, you know, by talking about God, not so popular, but, but God is the fundamental reality of the universe. So when you take God out of the picture and replace God with making yourself the star of the show as the goddess of fun and light, you're in very shaky ground, Judaically, uh, very shaky ground. The other big difference uh, with an, a big problem with the surrendered wife is she says, um, she, she says that, I mean, I once asked Rob Kellerman, I was in, as I said, a Muslim survivor with Rob Kellerman for 13, for 16 years. And I asked him what he thought of the surrendered wife. And he said that the whole system is, is crumb, that it's all based on what you can get for yourself, because the motivation of the surrendered wife is to take rather than give. And, and she had a book called Things get, Will Get As Good As You Can Stand, has as its subtitle, when you learn that it's better to receive than to give. And the advertising for the surrendered wife brandishes that goal, you know, to receive, to receive. So in Judaism, of course, Judaism... It's about giving. Well, there's Rav Wolba's whole teaching about the two worlds, the Olam HaYiditut and the Olam Hazarut. The world of connection is, you how do you get to the world of connection, which is where we should all try to live, is by an act of giving. 
Boba actually writes that the whole point of all the mitzvot is to get you to the olam hayadidu, the world of, of, of this this world of connection, which you get by giving. So the idea that uh, you know you want to be receiving, receiving, receiving. Now, of course, in the Jewish system, there is the sense, there is the definite concept that the husband is the is the mashpia, the bestower, and the wife is the makabel, the receiver. But it's not coming from a, a selfish place. It's coming from by receiving what your husband has to give in terms of uh, material sustenance or advice or help with your computer or whatever. Uh, you're allowing the husband to play the role that he needs to feel to come to, to become his become his highest self. So, so, so what I'm hearing is is two major distinctions when it comes to the surrendered wife, there's no God involved. And obviously, our concept of Shalom Ice is going to be God-centric. And number two, it's the wife and the motive of the wife. The, the goal of the wife is to get her desire. She may be surrendering, but ultimately she's doing it for her own benefit, trying to uh, somehow play a game with the husband and a charade of I'm going to surrender, but I'm going to get my way. And uh, the concept of Shalom Bayis, and, and hopefully you'll, you'll elaborate on your approach, is not, it's about me and getting my way, but it's about us. It's about improving our communal Shalom Bayis. Yes, yes, yes. One a quote from her, uh, from the Surrender Wife, the more you're willing to receive gifts, compliments, and help from your husband, the more feminine and attractive you'll be to him and the more special treatment you'll get. <laughs> In contrast, the Kesher Wife, again, the word Kesher means connection. So I call people who follow the system, I teach the Kesher, Kesher Wives, the Kesher wife practices receiving in order to be the macabre, in order to leave room, to give room for her husband to fulfill the masculine ideal of the mishpia, not because you'll, you'll get, you know, more, uh, she says, the good news is that what she calls the six intimacy skills are fun practices like taking naps, hanging out with your girlfriends, thinking about what you want and getting special treatment. A very, very different idea. I mean, one of her six, uh, practices you referred to is self-care. And she writes, if you devote yourself to your own enjoyment and delight, you'll not only have more reserves to deal with everyday upsets, you'll also become more attractive and pleasant so that you start to resemble the woman your husband fell in love with. Now in Kesher Wife, we also talk a lot about self-care because Judaism teaches that there are three basic relationships between you and Hashem, between you and your fellow person and between you and yourself. So you cannot neglect yourself. You cannot neglect yourself because it's one of the fundamental relationships. And uh, of course, Hillel Hazakain, you know, taught he was on his way to take a bath. And uh, his disciples asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm going to do a mitzvah. <laughs> you know, what's the mitzvah? I'm going to take a bath. When you see taking care of yourself, you know, getting those naps. And I definitely stress to my, uh, to my students that, you know, you've got to get enough sleep, <laughs> you know, take that nap. Um, Applies to everyone except new mothers who forget it. You're not going to get uh, enough sleep when you have an infant, but but everybody else has to get enough sleep. It's because taking care of one's body is a mitzvah. It's a whole different approach. So you're doing the same thing. You're getting that nap, but one is you're doing it for uh, because it's God-centered. It's, you know, as you said, God-centered. I like that that term. Uh, and the other is. Uh, you know, you will become this, you know, it's fun. You'll get, you'll become the goddess of, 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 of light and love. It's, it's, it's the difference between Halloween and Purim. Halloween, you knock on somebody's door and you say, give me something. And Purim, we knock on somebody's door and we say, let me give you something. Beautiful. I like that a lot. Okay. So, so walk, walk us through um, the core fundamental teaching that you have to, to, to the women. 
So the core fundamental teaching, again, is based on the fact, that God is totally in control. There's only one operative force in the universe. The second basic concept is you are a soul, and you are here in this world, as the Graal says, to, to do tikkun. You have your individual tikkun to do. So people have this fantasy that, no, everything should run smoothly. And when things don't run smoothly, something is wrong. And usually something is wrong because my spouse did something, you know, that they, that they was wrong. And, you know, and therefore they messed up everything. And therefore you get the blame and the rejection. But that's not the Jewish concept. The Jewish concept is we're here to do um, our tikkun. And in order to do your tikkun, you need those challenges. You need those rough spots because that's how we develop spiritually. The Gemara identifies eight things that are determined before you're even born. Of course, one of them famously is, is who your spouse is. So, you know, the, the boss call goes out 40 days before birth or conception, which is, you know, it says the son of so-and-so will marry the daughter of so-and-so. So it's determined who you will marry. Rob, Ezreal Talbor, Zatzal, said to me personally, you know, as I was asking him, but when I started Kesher Wife, he said, nobody stands under the chuppah with the wrong person, even if they subsequently get divorced. So you're, you're, you're supposed to go, you're supposed to learn something with this particular spouse. So the Leshem says, because often we have this idea, okay, it was determined before I was born that I had to be married to this person. Ugh, <laughs> you know, this person is so difficult. This person is critical. This person is, you know, is just, is, is not doing their part, this, da, da, whatever the problem is. Um, the Leshem says something absolutely mind-blowing. He says that you know, Hashem doesn't give you a deal you, you can't refuse. Instead, the soul itself chooses this spouse, these parents, this body type, all the things that are predetermined. The soul in the world of souls, before coming down into the physical world, chooses the, what will be this, the, the, the factors that will be best for the soul's tikkun, because that is the ikar. So he starts with, and this is, I'm quoting from the Leshem, who is Rabbi Shlomo Eliashev, the grandfather of Rav Yosef Shalom Eliashev, the Gadlador of the last generation. And he, his book is called the, the, the Leshem. He starts with a quote from Rosh Hashanah, um, Yud Aleph, Ahmed Aleph, that says, uh, all creatures were created in their stature, were created according to their knowledge and according to their knowledge and agreement, and were created according to their desire, you know? It's like, it's really, uh, it's really mind-boggling because this is what he says, and I'm going to quote from the Leshem. Everyone was created according to his knowledge and his will because he sees and understands that this is the true goodness for him to be created at this level precisely according to the goal of the intention of his existence that has been revealed to him from the mouth of HaKadosh Borhu to each and every one, which is Tikkun. The Hashem in the next world, the higher world before the soul comes down, reveals to the person their, their Tikkun. So it says, behold, it is done to him like this with the agreement of their knowledge and their desire and their will. The person wants that Tikkun. And therefore, they want even situations that are going to be difficult. The difficult parents, difficult body type. They all always have to be trying to lose weight. People choose. I mean, the things that are determined before birth, according to to the Gemara, our parents, body type, intelligence, talents, health, children to have them or not, Parnassa and spouse. So why would anybody choose to be poor? I mean, it's, it's predetermined. Who's, who's what, you know, the Ibn Ezra famously said, 
that he was destined to be poor. Whatever he did, he would never earn money, a lot of money. He said if he, would, if he made umbrellas, it would never rain. If he made shrouds, it would never, people would never die. Why would anybody choose poverty? The Leshem is saying the person chooses. Why would anybody choose a difficult spouse? And the answer is because the, what the goal is, is to do your tikkun. And people need this particular situation in order to do their individual tikkun. Uh-huh. So, so um, do we have time for me to continue with the quote? I know I have, there's some part of this quote I have to get to. It says, again, reading from the lesson, because they all live and understand and know at the beginning what will be at the end. And to them, it has been revealed the ultimate goal of their existence, their tikkun, and all of their goings and their happenings, everything that will happen to them from their first beginnings until the end of everything. And they choose for themselves all this with a willing nefesh, according to the knowledge that was revealed to them, like this from the mouth of the creator, that truly, and this is the key sense, that truly this is good and fitting for them according to their ultimate final tikkun. So, uh, so once you understand, you understand that the challenges in your marriage are something that wasn't imposed on you by a God who wanted to give you a hard time, that Hashem told you before your soul came down to this world what your tikkun is. And you chose this particular spouse with these particular strengths and weaknesses, with these particular flaws, because all human beings have flaws, including the, you know, the, the, the fact that this spouse is so different than I am. I'm such an organized person and this spouse is so disorganized. I'm such a, I'm such a planner and scheduler and this person is just spontaneity. I'm such a feeling person. This person is such a cold thinking person, whatever it is. And people have very big differences with their spouses that make them very difficult to, to live with. But the soul chose it because the goal is one's tikkun, one's spiritual rectification. And that changes the whole approach to marriage. Right. So if we're saying it's it's a tikkun, does that mean that anytime a, a wife is unhappy with something that the husband does, she should just say it's it's a tikkun and uh, this is what's going to be? And this is what's no, his decision? Just, no. So that's a very good question. So she's always oh, a tikkun is what's going to be. I'm just going to submit. No, she has to make it into a spiritual victory. She has to say, number one, this is from Hashem. Again, we're back to the first commandment, you know, the Ten Commandments. This is from Hashem. It's not from my husband. I'm going to stop blaming my husband, criticizing my husband, because this, like everything that happens to me, is from Hashem. There's only one operative force in the universe. So these human beings have free will to choose what they choose, but how much I suffer was determined last Rosh Hashanah by Hashem based on what I need for my tikkun. Right. So, uh, so here a person is facing the, the spouse, it could be husband or wife, does something, you know, really wrong, wrong. So the wife, I'm going to talk about wives because those are the people I work with. The, the wife is, can say, first of all, it's from Hashem, and that takes the sting out of it. Not from my husband. It was He was the, you know, the... Second, he was the intermediate cause, but everything's from Hashem, ain't owed milvado. And once you realize it's from Hashem, then you realize, hey, wait a second, what am I supposed to learn from it? This is a gift from Hashem. It's an opportunity to do my tikkun. What am I supposed to learn from it? That's the basic question. And then when you actually learn what you're supposed to learn from it, and for example, let's say you're, you, you have a tendency to anger, you're anger prone. And your husband does something that makes you angry. And you say, oh, wait a second, this is from Hashem. And what am I, what's, am I supposed to learn from it? What's my tikkun? Not to get angry, not because a person like angry is a person who is like one who uh, commits a vodazara, you know? Right. So, 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 it, it sounds to me that, that that is somewhat surrendering, but with a very positive uh, 
perspective on it. You're saying, you know, this is what it is. And, but no, 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 I'm not going to agree to that because I'm not going to agree to that because you have to turn the challenges into your life into spiritual victories. Every week we have what we call the Kesher wife of the week where wives send in their victories. Like for example, husband did something wrong. The wife didn't criticize him because that's one of our tools. You know, you don't commit the three sins and one of them is criticized. So she didn't criticize. She had to overcome. This is a mitzvah of the Torah. This is not to hurt other people with words, to judge favorably. These are mitzvahs of the Torah. When you do mitzvahs of the Torah, you have a spiritual victory. This is a victory that I didn't, not, oh, I surrendered because I'm just a shmata. No, I transcended my tendency to judge him negatively. And I did the mitzvah of judging him positively. Therefore, I am a heroine. I'm a giborah. And so then she, so we've had, we have innumerable success stories where the, the wife will say, so I didn't criticize him. And an hour later, he came to me and apologized, which he never would have done. It used to be when I would, he would do something and I would criticize him and we, we would be give each other the silent treatment for three days. But I, this time I didn't criticize him and he came back to me an hour later and apologized. And we had a great evening. And, 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 and based on this perspective, it's not only uh, people who are having shalom bias problems that should take this approach. This would be a, a lechat approach uh, even if you're not having shalom bias issues. Oh, absolutely. To, to, to all problems. I had a very big test. I won't go into the details. On Motzei Shabbos, I was really furious. I'm a volatile person by nature. And I know that my tikkun is to learn to, uh, instead of responding to frustration with anger, rejection, and blame, to respond to frustration with knowing that it's from Hashem and that it's for my good and to thank Hashem. So this, so I was by somebody, not my husband, somebody I am having a professional relationship with at this point, having to do with uh, one of my books. And uh, and I was furious and I was so angry and I was, you know, da, da, da. And I called my mentor, Rebetzin Sapora Heller, who's now Rebetzin Gottlieb. And I asked her, how, how am I supposed to pass this test? Because I see everything as a test. How am I supposed, what does it look like to pass this test? Because I knew this is Elul. This is happening in Elul. And, uh, and I knew that responding in anger, although I was 100% right, the per- other person was 100% wrong, that responding in anger is always a spiritual defeat. And, it's not, and my tikkun is to, 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 to see Hashem's hand and do differently. And she told me, she gave me five steps. One of the steps was, who, I have to deal with the practical ramifications of the situation. You always have to do that. Spiritual responses are not a replacement for actually doing what needs to be done in the physical world. So, uh, but she says, while you're doing it, who's the person you want to be when, while you're doing what has to be done? I said, oh, well, the person I want to be <laughs> is a calm, happy, loving, transcendent person who sees everything from Hashem. That's the person I want to be. Okay, be it. <laughs> you know? And if you can be it, it's a great spiritual victory. Right. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Mrs. Riegler, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's, uh, it's always a privilege having you on the show with us. Well, I'm very happy for any opportunity I can to tell holy Jewish souls what they're here in this world for, which is to do tikkun. And to put Hashem, always Rebison Heller says, put Hashem in the picture. Any picture without Hashem in it is a distorted picture because Eno Milabadel. Thank you very much. Very well. Joining us now is Mrs. Chaya Juravel. Mrs. Juravel is a life coach specializing in relationships, especially marriage. She originally trained as a Laura Doyle relationship coach. We'll explain what that is shortly, but has been developing more recently her own method of coaching, Shalom Bayis. 
She works with individuals, kalas, and couples as well. If anyone wants to reach out to her after hearing the show, she can be reached at Go for Harmony. That's G O. The number four, go for harmony at gmail.com. Mrs. Juravel, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, uh, Mrs. Juravel, you used to be a uh, Laura Doyle coach. You are no longer, obviously. If there's controversy involved in that, we'd love to hear why you decided to not be a, a, a representative of Laura Doyle anymore. But why don't we start off with who is Laura Doyle? What's her theory on marriage? Uh, I know she wrote a number of books, one of them, the surrendered wife. I'd love to know what surrendering means that a wife should surrender. She also uh, wrote a book first kill all the marriage counselors. That's fairly aggressive thing to name your book as to kill all the marriage counselors. And also I I do want to mention, I I, I did hear that there are a number of Kala teachers who have adopted her her approach. So obviously it's important that we know what her approach is. Where does it come from? And, And there are even women who are training as coaches, Laura Doyle coaches to train others. So what's going on out there? Is is this a a useful theory? What is her theory? And uh, is it something that we should be using in Klali's show? So her theory is really about what she perceives as um, an olden day theory, you know, something that our grandparents knew intuitively, and she's kind of bringing back this theory to present day because we've become so far removed from the old way of doing things. You know, she feels like there was a lot more marital happiness um, in the past. So her theory is that a woman should relinquish control to her husband and just and focus on her happiness, that a lady should try whatever she can do to earn her husband's approval. And by earning her husband's approval, he will be very motivated to making her happy. Is that um, what it means that she should surrender? She's surrendering to the husband's desires? So the term surrendering, a lot of people think that it means being submissive to a husband. That's not her intention. Her intention is that um, you're, you're, being, you're, you're surrendering to a higher power. You're relinquishing control to, um, to life, really. Um, and she says, you know, there, she has all sorts of, and all sorts of following. So um, it's not necessarily a religious approach, but she believes that you don't have to control life. And part of not controlling life is that you should relinquish control to your husband. So that's what she, that's, yeah, that's, that's the term surrendering. It's not being submissive and to your, to your husband, that's not her intention. But, but, but and ultimately, I think as, ultimately yeah. who's, who's making the decisions? So, so when, well, part of relinquishing control of life, you're relinquishing control of, you know, of, she, she talks about relinquishing control to, to, to the weather, to traffic, um, just not trying to change your environment. I'm not trying to change the people in your life. So if you're not trying to change your husband, very, that, that, what, what that means really is, is that you're letting your husband do what he wants. So then, then yes, she, she talks about letting your husband um, do, you know, do what he wants and you should, and basically you should, you should focus on your own happiness and do what you want. Sounds like they're living separate lives then. Um, In some ways, in some ways it can, it can feel that way. It can feel that way. She doesn't, she, she talks a lot about respect 
as in not changing her husband, letting him have his views. So how that works out practically, she, you know, when, when it's not something that's an I can't for you, when it's not something that's super difficult for you, then you do what your husband wants. But if it's an I can't, then you do what you want. And um, I, I should say that, you know, people using her approach use this I can't very in a very cavalier way. So like a lot of things are I can't. Every single woman is going to apply it differently. Uh-huh. Now, now, have uh, you seen that this is an effective method? Have couples seen positive results from this or negative results? So absolutely, there is a lot of people that have had positive results, because when you really when you try to earn your husband's approval, it is true that naturally, he'll be motivated to do what you want and to make you happy. Um, So so the, 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 the way that I see that this works is when you have a healthy husband, and you know, who has good relationship skills, and, and it's the lady who has like me those issues, right? She she doesn't have such great relationship skills, or she's, um, she's, you know, she's controlling, she's critical, but her husband is healthy. So then when she removes that obstacle of her, her, you know, of of being controlling of being critical, so then it opens up, you know, a very beautiful connection between her and her husband. So I definitely have seen a lot of positive with this approach. So why am I not teaching this approach anymore? Why do I um, not? I don't believe that that, um, it, it should be for a, a couple, l'chatchila. Um, and the reason, meaning it shouldn't be taught l'chatchila. And the reason for this is because relationships are so complex. And very often, very often, there's just more to that, that's, that meets the eye that's going on. And very often there are, the husband isn't so, uh, so healthy or, or, or doesn't have the best relationship skills. And in those cases, her method is just not sustainable, meaning the couple will have like I would, what I call a three month high, right? Or, or it could be even a year where, where they're doing great because, because there's a lot, a lot of pressure on the lady. She's just working so hard to be so perfect and so good to her husband and so not controlling and so not critical and so respectful and not trying to change him. And, um, and then and it's working. He's so happy. But what happens is, is that it's just too much for the lady after a while, whether it's three months or a year, or even, you know, it's usually harder. It's hard to, to sustain for more than a couple of months. The lady just feels like I can't do this anymore. And as soon as she stops using the skills, it reverts back to what was previous, her previous issues. So if her husband is not, doesn't have great relationship skills, is not extremely healthy, then all the same issues come up again, his issues, right? And then then the same dynamics follow. So uh-huh. it doesn't, it's not really sustainable. Uh, so what, um, I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is this will work when she has a lack of Midas, it'll work to improve her. But if she doesn't have the lack and he has the lack, or if neither have the lack, then why bother uh, being a submissive wife? So then it doesn't, it doesn't work so well. It doesn't, you know, I, I can't say again, I can't say it doesn't, a lot of times we, um, couples do feel a certain high, like I was saying, but it's not sustainable. It just doesn't last. And I, I get, I get phone calls like this and, and texts like this all the time where a lady reaches out to me and says, Oh, I've tried the surrendered wife approach. And um, it was great. But, but 
I still have so many problems. Like we're back to square one or I'm, I'm just not happy. So that's a very big key to um, the, you know, the problem with the surrendered wife is if a lady says to me, I'm just not happy. I'm not happy. I've been doing this for too long. And I, I feel I feel terrible. I feel like I constantly have to deny myself of my feelings. I constantly have to just, you know, change the way I feel to just to match his way. And it's just too much for me. Right. And I hear this all the time. Right. So why should the wife surrender as opposed to the husband? Is it because you feel miserable after a while? So why should the husband be miserable? Or, you know, why is this a method focused on and women as opposed to men? It's based on the theory that, um, control and running yourself ragged, that's what's damaging the marriage. And that's just not true in most cases. So so it's just basically saying that everyone is suffering from the same marital problem. And I believe there is no one size fits all. Marriage is so complex. There are so many different methods that are needed to improve a couple's relationship. Sometimes it's psychiatry, medication. Sometimes it's just improving emotional health improving self-confidence, um, working on, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, like healthy thought patterns. Um, so a lot of times it's a moon and Batakan, like a person just has to, um, just to help someone overcome anxiety or, or tools to help with anxiety. There's just so many different ways and different skills um, that, that could be used to help a couple. And each couple is unique and requires a different, um, a different method. So, so her, her approach is just too extreme and too rigid. She believes if you follow these six skills exactly in the way that I tell you to do them, using the same lingo, the same language that I want you to, then you will be successful. And any, any method that says uh, you will be successful if you follow my pr- approach, I would be very weary of because we are not in control of results. A Kachbarku is in control of results. All we could do is establish and um, any method that promises results that that's not a, a method that's that's healthy or that's um that's that's realistic. Right. Well, why so, size does not fit all? Exactly. Exactly. And I and I want to just and so so I want to give you an example of someone who came to me and how this method really um, brought about a lack of shalom bias in her marriage. Her husband was a businessman and he would go off. He would go. He would travel a couple times a year. And what he liked, what he loved was when she packed his suitcase. That is what he felt as love, right? That, that's what he wanted his wife to do for him. And his wife, who was a stay-at-home mother and, and wife, you know, listened to Laura Doyle and decided that she is not going to pack his suitcase anymore. And, and he really, he was so hurt that this is the one thing, you know, it happens a couple times a year. And this is the one thing that is important to him. And here, his wife is not packing his suitcase because he has to take care of his own things. Because that's one of the theories that is part of the Laura Doyle approach, mm-hmm. that he needs to take care of his own life. So here was, here was a situation that she came to me and I said to her, but this is, your husband gives you so much. And this is the one thing, this is one thing that's important to him. Um, it's, you know, and, and, and she went and she, she and, and I asked her, how, how hard is it for you? And she told me it's not, it's not very hard for her. She didn't mind doing it. So I helped her. So, so what that just shows is that you need to, you need to really understand what's good for you and for your relationship and not just follow an approach blindly. Right, right. So, so let's get to the question of why, why is it for the woman to be the surrenderer as opposed to the husband? Um, okay, so, so generally a lady, um, stereotypically, ladies have more emotional intelligence than men. Um, 
And, and I find that to be true sometimes. Sometimes it's the man that has more emotionally intelligence, emotional intelligence, um, and sometimes it's a lady. And generally, whoever has more emotional intelligence is going to be the one that is going to be investing in the relationship and bringing the relationship to the next level. And the other spouse is just going to meet her or his, um, or his um, um, investments to the relationship. Um, so Laura Doyle, she, her premise is, is that ladies have a lot more emotional intelligence than men and are more emotionally aware. And she is right a lot of the times, but some of the times she's really not right. And when you have a lady that is not emotionally intelligent and not emotionally aware, um, it just doesn't work her approach because she doesn't even realize when she's controlling. And, and, and sometimes even if she does realize she can learn, you know, what control means, she just can't use the approach in a way that um, is, is, is safe for both of them because of her lack of emotional intelligence and emotional awareness. And now, so really, what about the situation where she's trying to relinquish control to the husband, let him make decisions, certainly for himself, maybe for the family and kids, but the husband is illogical, makes bad decisions, maybe he's abusive, an alcoholic or a drug addict, would she still encourage this, this uh, surrendering? So in her book, The Empowered Wife, which is her latest version of Surrendered Wife, she writes that there's three deal breakers. One is physically abusive, which... Um, you know, any man who's physically abusive, you don't surrender to. Um, and one is unfaithful and one is um, in, in actively in, in an active addiction. So the thing is that I worked for her and I was part of her company for probably five years about. And, um, and, and what I saw is, is that she has a very loose definition of what an, uh, what a, what an, actively, an active addict is. And what um, and and who is someone who can't be faithful? So she works with a lot of people whose uh, women whose husbands are um, in affairs. She only works with the, with the lady, um, and she works with so she works with women whose husbands have a, who are in affairs, and she works with um, women whose husbands are alcoholics. And and the danger with that is that I mean, so, you know, being trying to earn someone's approval who's not healthy emotionally or has mental illness or who's an, who, or, or who's an active addict. Um, I mean, he's not, his interest is not his wife's. So his best interest is, is the, his addiction or himself. Let's say if he's mentally ill, he can't see past himself because he's in so much pain. So that puts a lady in a lot of danger. So what's very dangerous is for a woman who is, um, you know, abused in any way, this is, this is, you know, these, these, this is my, um, these are my thoughts that a woman who is abused in any way, um, not just physical, but, but emotionally as well, it can be very dangerous because then she feels like everything is my fault. Meaning it must be, I'm not surrendering right. Cause he's not responding the way that I want him to be responding. So it must be, I'm not doing the skills properly. And you start um, to blame And that's yourself. very dangerous. You start to blame yeah, yourself. Yeah, you blame yourself. So you become more of a victim to your circumstances. Yeah, I, I've heard that uh, that same issue with the other way when there are theories of that the husband should be relinquishing control to the wife and doing everything the thing the wife desires. And if, eventually the husband has the same feeling that if it's not working, and oftentimes it may not work, that he's at fault because he's not doing it right. So... Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, giving up too much control or ceding too much and becoming a schmata doesn't seem to be a, a, a good result for anyone. So what, what, what would you say about uh, this approach? Is it consistent with Torah values? Because it doesn't seem to be to me. 
So one of the first things that I help women with when they come to me is understanding their reality, understanding that they are not, no one is responsible. That is not consistent. That thought of being responsible for your husband's actions is not consistent with, 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 with Torah values. Um, we all have our own journey in Yiddishkeit and we all have our, we all are going to have our own Olam Haba. So, so no one is responsible. That's the first thing I have to help a lady with understanding her position and her relationship. Meaning if your husband has weaknesses, it's not because you are not being an Isha Kashera. It's not because you're not treating him like a king. That's not why you, um, he's not treating you like a queen. Um, now I'm not saying that there are times that, um, that, that, a husband is really lacking respect and that is affecting the way he's um, relating to her. But, but, but that's something that, that because of my experience, I, I really could, I, I, I have a good feel for. So if I, if I smell any mental health issues, I will help the lady understand um, that she has, you know, that he has his weaknesses, he has his mental health issues, and she's not responsible for that. And she can't fix that. And she can't make it better with any with any method, she just needs to dive in for him. And and Akash Baruch is the only one that can fix a spouse. Tell me, most importantly, and uh, like to end off on this, your approach. I mean, we, we've gotten a sense as we've discussed about what your approach is, but if you can spell it out for us, either a, a Kala comes to you and says, I'm about to get married, I want to make sure that I, I get this right, or a couple that comes to you and says, uh, things are a little bit choppy for us or uh, they're not so choppy, but we want to improve. What's, what's your approach to helping this couple? So really, I defi- I really, I, if I were to, you know, define what I teach Kalas or what I teach like my, my um, marital awareness course, it, it's really four things. It's, it's being warm and loving. And then in order to be warm and loving, you have to work, you have to feel good about yourself, have good self-confidence, take good care of yourself, being difficult to insult, to, 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 to be, to be hurt. And the reason for that is because some people are so, um, they get hurt very, very easily because either they don't feel good about themselves, um, or because they, they, they imply negative intention. And that's something that's extremely important to become, to become someone that could be done the cuffs plus that could attribute positive in- intention as the first response as your as your gut response. So 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 the, so that's what I, you know, so becoming difficult to, to insult, um, and and also becoming emotionally aware of the other person, meaning understanding the other person's needs, emotional um, needs in the relationship. Like I talk about the mahus of a man and a lady. A lady loves to be taken care of, loves to be given to, um, wants to feel that her husband loves her. Uh, um, and, and a man, it's more about he wants to he wants to feel his wife's approval. He wants to feel that his wife thinks that he's a great guy. Um, and he wants to be able to please her. When I, I probably the, the thing that men tell me the most is I don't know how to make my wife happy. I just I can't I don't I can't get it right. And ladies tell me the most is that he just, he's not happy with, me. he doesn't love me. Right. So, so, so just understanding, and also I'll talk about the differences between men and women. And really, so, so when a couple comes to me in crisis, I, I figure, I try to figure out what's, how can I get them their emotional health, both the man and lady to, to the best place? You know, how can I make them the most healthy and what, the, what's needed in this relationship to bring them together? For example, yesterday I got, a, I got the most beautiful text. Someone wrote to me, she wrote to me, thank you so much for working with us and helping me appreciate uh, my husband and my husband appreciate me. And, and, and she said, and that's Nachas. 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 Yeah. And I feel like I'm like Arna Cohen, like this is what Arna did. 
you just, I, I try to make two people see the good in each other and understand that we're all works in progress. So we're all going to have negative things and to become less of, less of a perfectionist and more healthy, happy human beings. Very good. Well, thank you. That's always a, a good um, objective for everyone. Mrs. Juravel, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's, a, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a wonderful show. Thank you. Okay, now we'll go through the riddles of last week. We got around 15 different Tarutzim, including a two Tarutzim from the Ger Rosh Hashiva, Rav Shalalta. We'll go through, through those as well. So the first riddle was, it says, Vatikach Rivka as big day Esav benoha gadol hachamudais asherita babayas. She took the clothing of Esav benoha gadol and she gave them to Yaakov. So Rashi says, Asherita babayas. Why did he leave them? Why did he leave them? Mafkid him by her. But he knew that they were a bunch of thieves. His wife, so he was mafkid them by his mother. So he has two questions. First of all, if she, he was mafkid by her, so she's a sheleich yad bepekadin, right? There's a shvua for that in the Torah. That's mamish and ma'isa gezel. How was she allowed to do it? How was she allowed to steal for the brachas? And we said the mois and the obvious nimos and makayim kolatayrakula. And additionally. How was he allowed to do it? Because the Raman Paskins and Gimel Tezvav of Gzeil, the Gemara Bab Metziah, that a Shoyal Shalomi Das Gazlin. You're not allowed to uh, borrow somebody's things without asking him permission. How you walk into somebody's house, you walk out with their fur coat. See, I'm just borrowing it. That's Shoyal Shalomi Das Gazlin. So how were they allowed to do it? This, uh, it was Kenegad Halacha. Esav didn't really own the Begadim for right. First time, the Majrashans say that he really stole it. From from whoever he killed it was Nimrod or whoever whoever it was that he killed, so he stole it. Again, even though the Gemara says it's timely time, but at the end of the day, it could be it's not suppositious to say that it belongs to him, and maybe there's no Isser Avshikasiad or Gneva to take it from him. So here's the problem with this Terence. We'll talk in learning. So you're saying that he stole them from Nimrod. Well, so. He was a Ganif. So then the question is, how was Rivka allowed to do it? A Yaakov, he's a Ganif and a Ganif. And what's the Allah of Ganif and a Ganif? We all know the Ktsais in Simon Lamedalad, that this that a Ganif and a Ganif has a Miat, it's only a Miat Lagabi Kefel. It's not a Miat Lagabi Isagneva. So it doesn't really answer the question if he's a Ganif and a Ganif. Now, according to the Nasivis, who holds that a Gainav Menagana, if there is no Issa, you could say that Enechanami, maybe, maybe Rifka and Yaakov hold like the Nasivis. Okay, that's a possibility. I'll be the Rambam in Tarkas of Navadim says that a guy could, could sell his, his, um, his kids for Avda and um, pass him like that in Shokhanaf Yadir, he's the Messiah. And it's more with her that a guy has a kid and a goat, and a goat in his bonnet. Not like a yid and a guy, it's a, a father, a parent has a kid and a goat in, um, in their child. So, um, and I'll be taking some of Vatra, because my mouth is more that um, they had a bin of a guy. So this one, this Yungaman is tining that uh, an Akum could sell his children. And if he could, certainly their Nechassim belonged to him. But Lachayra, that's only Ban of Haktanim, and not Gedolim. Or maybe it's Banim that Akfushim Tachas Yodav, like the Minchaschinach and Shin Mem Zayin owns. But a father who's 60 has a son who's uh, who's 30 or 40, or 20 for that matter, he, he can't sell him for an Eved. I mean, he's, he's at that point, he's a Gadol by a cotton. So at this point, there was certainly Gedolim. So, uh... You know, it says Vayigdalu an Arim and ready in the beginning of Talus. This is much is, is afterwards, years later. Slachira, this uh, this would be a problematic terrorist. That the reason she told Yaakov to take the bruchas was because she got a Nevi'ah. 
he writes that Anuvi, or it was Shu, was allowed to be Oven Avayda besides about Zuda. So if that's the case, we're dealing with uh, it was Shu of an Aviyah. So he's saying that Rivka was an Aviyah, and Aviyah could make a Hirasha. Bechaira, this that a Navi can make a Rasha, there's a whole parsha in the Torah. A Navi who comes to stop being with Mavatal Dine Torah is very problematic. And this that the Rambam brings that they can, it's only Lamig de Milsa, but Avada otherwise a Navi is not allowed to be Mavatal Adavamena Torah. So these, this answer really doesn't work. So this answer we got from a, a number of people, including Barry Best and his Chabura Nurishel. He writes the big Hasidim of headlines. I want to answer based on the Yushalmi. The Yushalmi and Megillah, Perak Aleph, says that the Big Day of Hamudos were actually Big Day Kahuna. And the Torah Timim explains that before uh, the Kohanim were, uh, were Nikdash, the uh, vote was by the Bechor. And so those were the Big Day Hamudos. Now, if Yaakov sold his Bechorah to Esau, the Mela, his clothes also should have gone over with that sale. So really the clothes should have belonged to uh, Yaakov and he had every right to, to wear them. That they were big day kahuna, and when he sold the Bechaira, he sold the kahuna too. But uh, the problem that I would ask the, uh, these, all these Talmudic Hachamim and these young Talmudic Hachamim, let's say you sell a house or anything that has Tashmishim. I sell you my car. Then I sell you everything that's in the car as well. There's a baby seat in the car. There's a stuff in, you know, so what is the halacha? And it's interesting, this is exact American law as well. If you buy a car, you would have to say, all the jack, the tire, everything that's movable, or in a house, anything that's removable, including the, the garbage pails, anything that is not denoted, Right? Kate said, Machores Habayas, Loy Machores Hayitziyash, Shiva Sabayas, Elam Kinsh, Chupatuach Hoysay. Or it has to be Beferish. The Shulchan Aruch goes even further. If you sold the bias and there's a roof, you didn't sell the roof. And if you ever did a contract on a house, you have to literally delineate every single item that is movable, and in some cases even not movable. Like the refrigerator has to be in the contract, otherwise it's assumed that it wasn't sold. So the fact that he gave him the Bechaira, like Mechatesa to say that he gave him. You know, the begadim that come with the Bechaira, the beautiful begadim. Maybe he wanted the begadim for himself. I think that would be problematic with this tarot. Of course, you can ding it. I'm just pointing out the uh, halacha. Uh, I'm impressed that uh, the, from the Chabur and Nurishel that they knew the Yerushalmi. Right? It seems that in Nurishel they learn more than just Gemara Shitaisis. An answer in writing we got from a few people that the Magan Avram says in, in, in Tafayin Beis of Cut and Beis, he says this that a Shoyal Shalomidas Gazlan. Once a year, a guy says, look, if you're watching something for me for a year, you could use it. And that's why on Pesach, you could use silver, uh, something gold or silver that somebody was mafkid by you. That's what the Magin Avram says. And some people say, and this is Memele, the Chsam Saifa, is Saimach, and this Magin Avram, uh, he shows too to our halacha that maybe that's the terror, how he was allowed to um, use these begadim. Now, here's the, here's, um, the problem. If... Shoyel Shalomi Das, even if you say, look, if it's a Gazlan, once a year, if I mafkid something by you, you want to use it once a year, I'm going to be Mavata. So let's say I was mafkid by you a ladder. So you would say once a year you could use it. Would you say, Mistama Yemeichel, that I could use this ladder to climb into the mafkid second floor window to steal everything from the house? I think it's a good svar to say that maybe... In such a case, <laughs> the Shaila would not agree to be that for the Shaila. So the problem with this case is, is that even though you could say Shail Shalomidas is not a goslin once a year, but would Esav agree that he should wear them, that he should be able to steal the, uh, the, the brachas with it? 
I think that this makes this terrorist, which we've got from a bunch of people, problematic. Now, Lamdin could answer, and I would find hard to really argue with this, is let's say you say a guy is a shoyal midas, right? This is a Lamdin would answer me this. And Mackenzie, you could talk, this is what Lamdish is about. You can go back and forth. Let's say a guy says, you know, can I borrow your ladder? And you say, absolutely. Hey, take my ladder. You do it bidas. And then I go ahead and I use that ladder to break into your house and to steal everything. Would you say, Lama Freya, now you become a gazlan on the ladder too? No, but they're not. The, 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 gazla, the, the, the ladder was, was midas when I gave it to you. What you did afterwards, you walk out separately. So you could take the position, according to the Magan of Ram, I allow you to take it once a, once a year, I'm not makbid. You could say, well, if subsequent to that, I used it to bagan for you, it doesn't make me retroactively a ganif on the clothing. Or you could say, nishtaza, you could say, that's when it was midas. But a shayel shalom midas is mistama, the guy would, would agree. Well, would he agree if he knew? So it's, it's hard to really come to a conclusion. It's a possible, Terrence, we'll say that. Now, when I asked the Rosh Hashiva of Gera this question, by the way, what happened? Rebelezer Shaina called me up. He said, he, let's, you would enjoy meeting him. So I did. And what does a yeshiva bacha do when he sees a Rosh Hashiva? What am I supposed to do? Meretan learning. You know, it's not, we don't ask Rosh Hashivas for brachas where I come from. You ask Akasha. So it was, a, I don't know, a Tuesday night or a Monday night. I don't know where I was with Rav Achtfeigl and him. I don't remember what night it was. But uh, so I, said, I said, you know, I'll ask him something on the parish. Everybody learns the parish. I asked him this question. And he said to me, he answered me that the Allah is that since uh, um, Asa was a Yisrael mummer, and Allah by a mummer is. My read in Vilay Malin, in other words, if he's in a in a boyer, you could pull the ladder out, right? So uh, so the halach is, so he says, since there's a din of my read in Vilay Malin, that you're allowed to leave him in the boyer to die, so he says, so certainly Yamafkir his 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 money becomes hefka too. Now, this is not such a simple teretz. There was a Shulchan Aruch in Shin Peches. says, Why? Shari Yarshav, it's a Gemara, right? Because the the mamayne is royally yarshav, so you, just because somebody's guilty of death, his uh, his money, his yarshim get. But the Ramah says v'yeshaimrim the mutalito mamayne laatzmai. Right, he brings it from a Mardachai. So you could say again, maybe that the Rosh Hashiva from Ger would be correct, like the, like the opinion of the Ramah, that since he was a Mummer, Mamela, his Nechassim, you could take as well. Now here's another Teretz. This my son Maishi told it to me that the halach is avid inishdino anafshe. If somebody steals from you, you can walk in back into their property and steal it back. You could protect your own assets, right? So he wanted to taina that since the brachas really belonged to Yaakov, and in effect, Esav was stealing them from Yaakov when he got them from his father. So he was allowed to take these begadim, steal the begadim in effect, but it's not theft because he's doing it to protect his own assets. Now, this is very problematic because Papashis Avadin is Dinal Nafshi means I could do something that's, or the, most of the cases that have a direct, my car is sitting in your driveway, I could break into your driveway to take my car back, right? But could I s- steal your car to drive to your house to take my car back? The Shtechenish, that's already an extra, an extra step. So the only closest thing that we could find is it is in Hagos Ashri in Babakama in Paragimel, Simon Gimel. He says that there was a Maisabim Mitzrayim. Right, that somebody was mafkid, a pakadin by somebody, and the shaymer apakadin lied and he stole the pakadin. So the mafkid went to the archais and he caused damage to the uh, to the nifgad um, because the goyim did a lot more damage to the to the to this thief than just taking the pakadin back. In other words, they they caused them all kinds of fines and saras. So you see that it went way beyond the um, the damage itself. I mean, you could argue with this and say he went 
going to Narcois was for the thing itself. So it, it is a Chiddush, but it's possible to say. So we'll leave this also as a, as a possible Teretz. And by the way, here is the Teretz that I believe is, is probably the correct Teretz. So we'll answer this with the famous Nefesh Chaim, Shargemo Perk Zayin, where he says, and I'll read his Russian, he says, Levada Mitzvah, Afkim Lavar, Lays a Mitzvah, Shalai, Tarak, Pishiro, Vesigo, Vesukin, Kizer, Indian, Umaisa, Pratis, Mitzvah, Ozotikur, Roma. As always, we're able to be over, or, 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 uh, even though they kept the whole Torah, but, they, but, but if they saw a, a Tikkun that was needed for, for Tikkun um, Olamos, they would be over that, that Esther. And therefore, um, Yaakov Avinu was able to take the Hamudos because this was necessary in order to get the Bracha. It, it was a Tikkun Olamos. And if you'll, 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 you'll say, so at least he didn't keep the whole, he wasn't able to keep the Torah, but he should at least be able to be high to keep the Shevim Mitzvah and which one of the, them is Gzela. So how could he be over that? So the answer to that is, as most folks can hold, that the din of Shal Shlomidas Nik or Gazlan is only a din derabanan, and and it's only a din derabanan, and 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 goyim are not mechoyev in this. They're not mechoyev in in this, and therefore Yaakovino had no problem in taking it, and he was not considered a Shlom Shlomidas. You know, what is it that the Nefshachayim basically says that um, that before Matan Torah, even though the Avos were Mekayim Kala Torah Kula, they weren't Mekayim Kala Torah. Where it, it had to do something with the seedus of Klal Yisrael, they were allowed to use their their view into the future of Klal Yisrael to say, here we're not going to do all the kolatayra kula. The problem with this is, I, you know, uh, the halacha of kaifa bepikadin or shal shlamidas gazlin, and gazlin is one of the Zion mitzvahs b'nei and even the nefshachayim holds they had to be mekayim the Zion mitzvahs b'nei before matan Torah. And on this, I would think the answer would be is even though there's a din of isegezel kaidem matan al dinim. It's very likely that Dinim didn't go to so the finities of halacha that Klal Yisrael has, such as Shail Shalomidaz Gazlin or, or the halacha of Shalach Yad Bepikadin. So I believe that this is the, the correct terrorist, that, that even though she was Mekayim Kala Kula, things that had to do with uh, that Vasidus uh, of Klal Yisrael, what they, what they thought was important they did, over there, they didn't. And there was no Din in Bnei Noach of Shail Shalomidaz. I would say of all the Turots, and this is the one that in the Yeshiva world, they would say is the best one. So here's the second riddle we asked. It says, Vayelach Esav el Yishmuel vayikach es machlas vas Yishmuel al Nashav loyalisha. So Rashi Lamed Vav in our parasha, and Vayishlach actually brings, Gimel moichlan lohen avay noisav. Gersh in Eskaya el Ligdula vanoisa isha. Wise. And they learn it from here, because why is she called machlas? Shenim chalu avay noisav. Esav's avoidance were forgiven. And that's why we talk a paskin in Shulchan Aruch Avin Ezra Samach Aleph Aleph. That a chasen v'kala mesanen b'yayim chupasan. Because the moichelam b'yayim zel on their avoidance, which is we all do. We fast on thing. It's a day of mechilas avoidance and we fast. But here's the problem. Rashi in last week's Sedra says, what you learn it from Machlos Basishmal Nashav, but what does Rashi say when he met Al Nashav? Rashi's Medayik Al Nashav. Hoisif Risha Al Rishasai. He added one Rishanta on his others. Shaloi Girishis Arishonis. Till now he had two Oivdi Avaydazara. And now he had a third Oivedis Avaydazara in his house. It seems very clear from Rashi that. Esav didn't do tshuva, notwithstanding the fact that he didn't do tshuva, he was still nimchal. So you see, the mechilas avoynus of a chassan is without any, is without any tshuva. So Bazai, why does the Ramah say in Samach Aleph that the chassan has to fast? The fasting is because of tshuva. The makayrus is from here, and here you don't have to do tshuva. So why does the Ramah say that you have to fast? That was the shaila. So the, if you look at the Rebbeinu um, Chaya in Parshas Vayishlach, Parakamet Zvav Posugimel, and the pasuk there. And he brings the Medrash, uh, the Medrash, uh, Yushalmi, that says that Gimel Moichlin Lohem, Chason, 
in the car where the car is where we fast from, and he says he needs he brings another medrash. That medrash is mechadik diver medrash in Bereishis Rabbo. The Ace of Nosan Daitel is Geyer, and uh, the Ramban also brings that medrash Rabbo that Ace was Nosan Daitel is Geyer, and uh, he says that that is mechadik the the other med the other medrash is mechadik this medrash of Charis. That's why Taka he got a kapora. Because he was not an so this younger man, this young Talmud Tachem was telling us that Esav had a hair tshuva. I mean, that's a problem. Rashi certainly doesn't seem this way. Hoysef Rishal Rishasai doesn't sound like he had any hair tshuva whatsoever. I, the Medrash, says he did have a hair tshuva. Well, it's a machloikis in the Medrash. The Medrash says, Rabbi Shua ben Levi Yomar Nasan and Shemachal HaKadosh Baruch that's the first shot, that he did do tshuva. Amar Rebbe Lezer, no. He wasn't Moitzius or Rishainis, but he was Moisif Ke'ev Al Ke'ev. One Rishant on the other Rishant. So Rashi's learning, clearly, the Pshtam and the Medrash, that he didn't do Tshuva. And Rashi in 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 Vayishlach, where he says, Machlash is called Mechila, if Rashi's Lashita, say Rashi's saying, Hoisiv Ke'ev Al Ke'ev, and yet he learns the Rishalmi, even so, there's still Moichlalai. But the, I mean, it's very hard to look in the Rashi, Hoisiv Ke'ev Al Ke'ev, that there's any type of a tshuva, and that, and that, and this very Pshat argues on the Pshat that Asa Tshuva. So Rashi here is clearly going, not like the Pshat, Shanas and Daitil is Geyer. So I, I don't think this is a. a I don't, I don't see this pshat. I, you know, I apologize, but that's my opinion. The Ace of Warden Chavan and got married to Shem Shemayim because he knew that his father was married to Canaan, only from his Mishpacha. Therefore, he moved to Chafi Shmuel because he knew his father, his father didn't want to marry, to marry Canaan. So it's Taka Shem Shemayim. So we see him here that someone who's Mechavan gets married to Shem Shemayim, then Hashem is Mechavi Zavaris. So this younger man is teaching that he, uh, he was nicer L'shem Shemayim and there's a Hirachuva here, I guess, right? I mean, here's my question. If somebody is doing Arishas while they're, if somebody's on Yom Kippur, he's doing Tshuva while he's playing a video game. I mean, we call that Toivel V'sharetz B'yadai. So if he's being, marrying a Mumeris, Rashi learns Arishas, Rishal Rishanta, so Rishal Rishasai, or Ke'ev Al Ke'ev, but he's marrying the Rishanta because his father doesn't want to take Beis Kenan. I don't know. I don't think that's tshuva. I don't think that works. I mean, you could, you could disagree, but that's uh, but that's what we call Toivel V'sharetz B'yadai. Now, I asked again Rashiv of Ger this question, and he said, well, you know, look, obviously in Yiddish, but I'll say it in English because we speak English here. He said, listen, he was a mumma. She was a mumeris. You think they really had a real kedushin? So al nash of Lailisha means a sikivan, like they were living together, but it wasn't a real kedushin. But, so it's just a mushal. It's a metaphor. And from here we learn that since he was nimchal, in this metaphor, we learn it for our kedushin. And therefore, since it's only a metaphor, you say we fast. I mean, if it's just a mushal, I mean, it's it's hard to learn halachas from a mushal, and even on a mushal, there should be a klal of dai lovim and adin liyes kenadin. So honestly, I I was struggling with with this teretz. I don't know if that's accurate in the mechila. Maybe about the mechul chasin stamaze of an eisov, and since it's a serious day, supposed to fast, and eisov did the wrong thing by not fasting. So I think in the olam hayishivas, they would accept this as the correct tshuva, the, re- the the correct answer. That what even like Rebbe who holds itzuma yishal yoyim without tshuva, you still you still fast on yom kippur, even though tshuva's yom kippur is mechap without. And what is it? Yes, you have a kapara. Uh, you, you know, you you have mechila. But you have mechila without kapara. In other words, it's hard to say that even though if you nimchal avoynosav, you know, to say that the the the, the shmutz of davera went away. Mechila means that you know I'm not going to extract vengeance. 
right? And you know, somebody's moichel lechayiv. That means it's gone, right? But it doesn't mean the fact that maybe you you moichel the gzela that the the damage or the the pain that the gzela did that the, the, there's no. We're not friends, even if there was, if if you didn't repay. I mean, maybe you, you could be Michael that too, but I could be Michael and not not have kapara. That that's what I would say. So Rebbe holds mechila there is, but kapara there is. In other words, you, you still need tshuva. For, you still have to fast for tshuva, right? So the same thing here. But if he's hoisiv rishal rishasai tshuva, you don't have. So we would like that learn from Yom Kippur that we want Mechila plus Tshuva. So just like over the Itzumai Shal Yoyim and you still need a Tainus, here Itzumai Shal marriage is Mechapa, just like a Gershon is Geyer. It's, it's a new person, or Eulah but but Tshuva, there isn't. And for that, they said you should fast, just just like on Yom Kippur, and I believe this is the correct answer. But we got a lot of fabulous Tirutzim from a lot of Talmudic Chachamim and a lot of Yeh Batayra, you know, people who I am. And feel free to disagree with me, remember, one thing, there's only two prakim in the entire 700 or so prakim of all Mishnayis that don't have a machlaikis. So at, what's our Masoira? Our Masoira is a yid was given a cup, not to put it on a shelf, but to think and to agree and to disagree. Bishvili never oilam. So feel free. Please disagree with my, uh, with my assessments.